Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk about purpose with inspiring people making a positive impact with their lives. We are particularly interested in social enterprises and entrepreneurs. We will listen to them reflect on their journeys and take time to dig deeper in order to better understand what really motivates their choices. Well, hey everyone, welcome along to the show. I'm really glad you could join me for this special bonus episode. This is one that's unlike any I've ever done before. As those of you who are faithful listeners will know, I was involved in helping to co-author a report called Structuring for Impact, Evolving Legal Structures for Business in New Zealand. And I'm really, really proud of this report. If you haven't got a copy, there will be a link in the show notes. And I really want to help develop the ecosystem in our country around social enterprise and what the future might hold. But I also wanted to make it accessible for people who wouldn't necessarily sit and read the whole thing. But they might be on a long commute and they might actually listen to an audiobook. So what I've done here is record an audiobook of the main text from the report. And I have a big thank you to my wife, Ellie Mo, who stepped in to read the quotes that are scattered throughout the report. If you enjoy what I'm trying to do with Seeds Podcast, then I would really appreciate your help in getting the word out about it, because we're nearly at the 100th episode, which is really all about building up more stories of people who are doing inspiring things, both in the not-for-profit as well as the for-profit worlds. But a show like this really depends on word of mouth, and it's people like you telling your friends about it that will help it to grow. And a big thank you to those who are helping to spread the word by posting on social media and just getting the word out in different ways that I personally can't do. Thank you very much. It's really appreciated. Now let's get into the detail of the report presented as an audiobook. Structuring for Impact, Evolving Legal Structures for Business in New Zealand, written by Dr. Jane Horan, Plain Jane Research, Amber Hosking, Russell McVeigh, Stephen Moe, Perry Field. Jackson Rowland, Akina Invest, Philippa Wilkie, Chapman Trip. Forward by Sir Neville Jordan. For our country to better look after our people and environment, we need innovative ways to achieve social inclusiveness and well-being for all New Zealanders. Some businesses, often referred to as social enterprises, have long been working for broader visions of social and environmental capital and have significant untapped potential to create transformative change for New Zealand alongside traditional delivery models for social outcomes. Social enterprise models have the potential to innovate and to create value for a triple or quadruple bottom line. In the process, jobs are created, communities are nurtured, the environment is preserved and maintained, and the economy is fostered. We are also seeing significant growth in the number of businesses in New Zealand that operate with both an impact as well as the traditional profit focus as the world starts to shift towards solving the complex challenges we are all facing. What this report evidences is that New Zealand's current legal structures and financial expectations are hindering social enterprises being able to reach their full potential Businesses that prioritize more than just financial profit are being disadvantaged in New Zealand. New Zealand has the potential to enable business of the future and to establish a suitable, modern, legal, and commercial environment that does not hinder and disadvantage businesses creating social or environmental impact. The disadvantages which this report identifies and the potential growth in well-being for New Zealand if these are removed are significant. By dismantling the barriers that the current legal structures are 
present for social enterprise, we can catalyze private sector-led solutions and demonstrate how impact through enterprise can be achieved across the entire economy. If we create the right settings for social enterprise, we have the opportunity to enhance the prosperity and well-being of generations to come in New Zealand. Therefore, we encourage the government, parliament, and the wide range of stakeholders involved in the analysis of our current legal structures and tasked with growing impact investment in New Zealand to consider carefully the details of this report to seek to understand the importance of impact through enterprise and to take action and to make those reforms that are necessary to let social enterprise achieve its full potential and impact in New Zealand. Executive Summary Social enterprise is about prioritizing impact as well as profit. While New Zealand has legal structures which enable organizations who prioritize one or the other, i.e. charity or traditional business, social enterprise does not fit neatly within these models and often has only a passing resemblance to them. Instead, social enterprises operate with a different logic. The social entrepreneurs behind social enterprises pursue a different set of values from traditional business with profit being only one factor in the mix, and often only as a means to achieving more impact. Based on the growth and contributions of social enterprise to New Zealand to date, it is clear that organizations who prioritize more than profit have significant potential to positively grow New Zealand's economy in a broad sense, solving significant societal challenges along the way. Because of this, New Zealand needs a legal and policy environment that enables and encourages businesses that are trading for impact. For the most part, however, operating a social enterprise in this country is more challenging than running a purely profit-driven business. This report finds that the legal structures currently available in New Zealand are acting as barriers for, and disadvantage to, social enterprises. The array of issues and challenges social enterprises face using limited liability company structures or any other legal structure in New Zealand stems from the reality that these structures develop from a perspective that doing good is separate from doing business. The distinction between doing good as charity on the one hand and doing business on the other is cemented in the prevailing attitudes of what charity as a way of doing good is allowed to be and what doing business is required to be. This context makes doing business with impact far more difficult than standard for-profit business. This report sets out evidence from social enterprises about the perceived challenges associated with the current legal structures and argues that evolving legal structures to remove those challenges will unlock the potential of business to generate social and environmental impact at scale that grows the well-being of New Zealand. Doing so, so would also support organizations underpinned by Te Ao Māori in a way that really honors Te Tiriti o Waitangi. All but one of the social enterprises we spoke with in this research found that their legal structure created hurdles for their organization. These hurdles appear to be most commonly centered around the enterprise's inability to convey and protect their mission, and the consequential challenges that any workarounds to this create. Funding was the other key disadvantage, with many social enterprises finding accessing funding very difficult because of their structures, a hurdle which is having significant implications on the ability of these organizations and their impact to scale. The world is changing. Businesses that exist for profit and purpose are now commonplace. 
Social enterprises prioritize people and the environment, ensuring they are looked after through business, rather than as collateral of profit-making. The way social enterprises operate has the potential to generate significant value for New Zealand and to deliver the government's social and environmental outcomes, and embodies the ethos of the Living Standards Framework. By making minor amendments to the Companies Act 1993, this report, report argues that New Zealand has the capacity to create a world-first model for business that enables organizations to trade for impact, and in doing so, catalyze the extraordinary entrepreneurship that is happening in the social enterprise sector in New Zealand to unlock innovation that will create greater well-being for generations of New Zealanders to come. After the executive summary, there's a table which sets out certain disadvantages and their potential solutions. Disadvantages perceived by social enterprises associated with their legal structures. Mission. Do not clearly signal that social enterprises trade with impact or mission front and center, i.e. purpose is prioritized over profit. A solution could allow companies trading for profit to opt into provisions that enshrine mission impact statements in its rules or constitution. Current legal structures do not reflect the very nature and function of social enterprises, i.e. as being neither distinctly charitable nor for profit. A solution could provide a recognizable variation to the company model that is the vehicle for businesses using company structures to trade for impact. Other legal structure options would still be available for traditional charitable, cooperative or for-profit entities. Current legal structures do not recognize the value of the impact generated by social enterprises and the higher levels of skill or efficiency required for social entrepreneurs to sustainably and at scale trade to create that level of social, cultural and environmental impact for New Zealand. A solution could, through the involvement of central government, recognize and legitimize the value created by social enterprise. This recognition would help social enterprise in the tendering or contracting process show how it can meet social, cultural and environmental outcomes. Funding. Current legal structures make it difficult for social enterprises to access equity funding, being the issuance of shares in the company in exchange for capital, because, first, Maintaining ownership of the shares is a way to protect the mission of the social enterprise. Second, social enterprises with charitable status cannot distribute dividends to private shareholders. And third, multiple classes and types of shares, including in structures with cooperative ownership models, add complexities to structures that is expensive and makes them unrecognizable or confusing for investors. A solution could put mission front and centre so that social enterprises do not need to rely on owning all of the company's shares or applying for charitable status to convey and protect the mission of the enterprise, thereby allowing social entrepreneurs to seek capital investment from ex external investors with confidence and allow investors to more easily recognise the impact that they can invest in. Current legal structures, based on the existing binary model of charitable versus for-profit, are unsuited to non-charitable entities trading for impact. This mismatch makes it difficult for social enterprises to access philanthropic funding, which is commonly restricted to registered charities, to prevent any risk of personal gain that would affect the charitable status of the philanthropic organizations. A solution could be a recognisable entity with appropriate reporting and accountability measures that achieve social, cultural and environmental impact that can be expressly included in grant offerings and impact investing criteria. 
Current legal structures have historically been used to separate doing good from profit making. Therefore, social enterprises face difficulty using the current structures to convey the importance of their impact and commerciality. This makes it harder for social enterprises to access funding from banks and traditional lending institutions that are also built on this traditional separation of companies trading for profit and charities delivering impact through grants and volunteer services. A solution could reflect the growing movement towards adopting business models that pursue multiple values, i.e. impact as well as profit. The legitimacy afforded by this public recognition may remove some of the hesitancy and caution of lenders that results in the lenders turning social enterprises away for being too risky or not commercially sound at a first glance. Innovation. Current legal structures either require only basic reporting for non-charitable companies or owner's financial and performance reporting for charitable entities. A solution could include accountability and reporting measures that show impact but recognize the commercial nature of the enterprise. Current legal structures being modified and adapted for social enterprise are becoming unwieldy, expensive and administratively burdensome multiple entity structures. A solution could provide a single model that has the essential requirements of social enterprise, thus removing the need for multiple entity structures. Current legal structures present additional burdens for social enterprises that are not faced by for-profit companies. This status quo does not reflect the benefit which New Zealand gains from social enterprise generating impact, addressing current social, cultural and environmental issues in New Zealand that instead should be enabled and encouraged. A solution could provide an identifiable model recognisable to stakeholders to partner with or provide funding and support to to achieve policy goals, for example, meeting criteria for social outcomes set out in the government rules of procurement or the living standards framework. Part 1. Introduction. 1.1. Social Enterprise and Legal Structure. Social enterprise is about creating impact as well as profit. Social enterprise is neither distinctly charitable nor for-profit and have, in many cases, only a passing resemblance to these two characterizations, instead operating with varying degrees of a different logic. Social enterprises manifest and express a different set of values from traditional for-profit business and, consequentially, the value outputs of social enterprise include a combination of human, social, cultural, and environmental capitals, as well as financial capital. While business in this form is not new in Aotearoa, New Zealand, the last century has seen the economy orient towards a distinct binary between for-profit business and charity. In effect, different versions of value have been allocated to one side or the other of this binary, financial value being the motivation for and output of for profit business. Other forms of value, as in human, social, cultural, and environmental, are found in the domain of charity, being the exclusive realm for doing good. In the business domain, money is made, and in the charity domain, money is received. For the most part, this distinction is supported by legal structures and reflected in the shared societal understanding of what charity as a prescribed way of doing good is allowed to be and what doing business is required to be. Conducting an enterprise where financial value along with other forms of value are given equal weight in the process of trading in New Zealand is possible. The increasing number of social enterprise organizations in the New Zealand economy attest to this. But these do not exist because the available legal structures facilitate the establishment and operation of social enterprises. 
Rather, social enterprise is happening in this country despite hurdles caused by legal structures. Social enterprise in New Zealand exists because of the failure of the dominant economic system to entirely look after the social, cultural, and environmental imperatives that are integral to New Zealand society. Importantly, this is also what the introduction of the Living Standards Framework from the New Zealand government is is about. The alignment between what social enterprise has been doing for a long time and what government is beginning is profound, and why the development of the social enterprise sector will unlock significant benefits for New Zealand. Why do this research now? In March 2018, responding to the submission of a discussion document on a new legal structure for social enterprise in New Zealand, Akina 2017, the Honorable David Parker, Minister for Economic Development, sent a letter to Louise Aitken, Chief Executive of Akina Foundation, stating, Ministry of Business Innovation and Employment agrees that acts designed for not-for-profit entities do not suit the needs of social enterprises. MB has advised, however, that it views the Companies Act to be accessible by social enterprises. It does not consider that the report provides sufficient evidence or examples of where social enterprises have been hindered or disadvantaged by the Companies Act. To understand your concerns better, we would be interested in learning about specific examples of social enterprises that have been unduly affected by the perceived challenges associated with their legal structure. In this report, we detail specific examples of hindrance and disadvantage that arise from the current legal structures, sometimes directly, other times in more oblique waves. Our insights are based on ethnographically informed interviews and an online survey. See Appendix C for more details on the methodology. Structure of this report. Part 1 of this report outlines the scope of the research and provides detail about the conceptual framework that sits as background and orientates the analysis we have used. In particular, it looks at social change that is happening in New Zealand, the living standards framework that Treasury and the rest of government are embracing, and how social enterprise is leading the way in doing business in a way that echoes the sentiment of the living standards framework, the relationship between social enterprises as a mode of doing business, and what charity and for-profit business are within New Zealand's dominant economic reality. Part two of this report looks at the ways legal structure affects social enterprise, where legal structure is a direct barrier or a symptom of an economic system that is hindering social enterprise in this country. Section 2.1 looks at mission versus legal structure. Section 2.2 looks at funding versus legal structure. Section 2.3 looks at innovation versus legal structure. Part 3 looks at what can be done to alleviate the situation and the opportunity New Zealand has to lead globally in this space. Appendix A lists, with brief bios, the social enterprise organizations and other stakeholders involved and or associated with the social enterprise ecosystem that we spoke with through the course of this research. Appendix B comprises more detailed case studies of 10 social enterprises and their relationships with legal structure. Appendix C gives more detail on the methodology and research process we have used. 1.2. Conceptual Framework. Social Change in New Zealand. Social change is happening in New Zealand as a consequence of environmental degradation and growing inequality. This is manifested in most aspects of life, from the increasing number of children living in poverty, to increasing rates of suicide and mental illness, to the economic and social fragmentation of communities around the country. The way the general public, the business community, and government are responding to these realities is multifaceted out of necessity. 
Cliff Cahoon from CBEC, a community enterprise operating across Northland, identifies this and notes, It's all about energy levels. It feels like it's only really kicked in in a meaningful way in the last few years. It's almost like when you look at corporate New Zealand, it's only been in the last two years that there's been this road to Damascus type experience for them, where suddenly you're seeing the big corporates see the light and try to genuinely do some stuff of significance. In the last election, that discomfort of people showed. The issue of poverty was raised a lot. And I think most people in New Zealand go, I'm not comfortable with what I see, and I want to see it change. So that's a mind shift. No matter where you are in New Zealand, people are going, oh, something's got to be done about this. We don't like New Zealand this way. The growing consumer demand for ethically, environmentally, and sustainably produced products and services is a phenomenon that is growing globally and is now discernible as personal social responsibility. A number of the social enterprises we spoke with are catering for this market, and their businesses are growing. Consumer demands on corporates to do more than what is passed as standard corporate social responsibility attest to the change and evolving economic parameters that social enterprises are uniquely placed to leverage. The government is responding to these broader societal changes by aligning policy directives with the conceptual understanding of the prevailing socioeconomic dynamics. Treasury is looking at more nuanced frameworks to measure and develop policy, The Living Standards Framework has been developed by Treasury to consider the collective impact of policies on intergenerational well-being. The approach is about the consideration and analysis of human, social, cultural, and natural capital, as well as financial capital, as contributing factors to the well-being of New Zealanders. The focus of Treasury is currently pragmatic and exploratory, and the set of discussion papers by King, Hisseiniri, and McGibbon, Freeling, Morrissey, Zanzi, and Ao are about starting a conversation on the value of these different types of capital in relation to well-being. This report adds to this conversation. The social enterprise we've spoken with in this research project are now running dynamic organizations that have fully integrated multiple forms of value as they conduct their array of enterprises with mission front and center. Jeanette Searle from Achieving at Waitakere and Take My Hands, amongst other social enterprise initiatives, put it like this. I think it's a bigger conversation, and I go back to where we place value, and how we define success, and how we define value. At the moment, a massive majority of it is around financial success and profits, and that's how we are measuring success for business. Because even in those places that aren't driven to generate profits, we're still not measuring their success properly. So if we had a conversation and go, yes, generation of financial wealth and all of that kind of stuff is one part of it, but actually there are these other value systems that are equally important. And I think there's a beginning of a move towards that with some of the reporting now, so that in the conversation and shift perceptions around financial value being the only measure of success. The alignment between what Treasury are starting to do and what social enterprise has been doing for years with sophistication and entrepreneurship is significant. Evolving legal structures to reflect this reframing of value would unlock the potential for social enterprise to benefit the New Zealand economy. The relationship between social enterprise and charity and business. In this section, we seek to frame and then reconceptualize the relationship between social enterprise and the logic where charity versus business is a binary. 
This is important because unless we understand the nature of the relationship between social enterprise, charity, and for-profit business, and how current law reflects this segmentation, the understanding of the nature of the ecosystem in which social enterprise exists will be limited. While Minister Parker's letter acknowledges that the not-for-profit legal structures are unsuitable for social enterprises, it is a common assertion that a limited liability company, often with charitable status, should be a suitable vehicle for social enterprises, because the assumption is that social enterprise is a hybrid of charity and for-profit business. This logic reflects the standard representation of the relationship of the social enterprise to charity on one end of the spectrum and for-profit business on the other. However, while different versions of social enterprise are represented in this schematic, the relationship of charity to for-profit business and social enterprise is inaccurate. Many of the social enterprises interviewed are fundamentally different to the traditional charity or for-profit business because they are founded on the basis of a different paradigm. The inclusion of financial capital along with other versions of capital as the key value outputs from social enterprise is not merely a recipe of take a bit of charity and a bit of for-profit business and combine to make social enterprise. Rather, social enterprise embodies a fundamental change in the motivation and methodology of doing business. We conceptualize this approach in this way. Standard for-profit business and standard charity are two parts of a single whole that comprise the system called capitalism. Secondly, capitalism is a subset of a broader notion of economy called the human economy, which has a broader set of imperatives, including human well-being. Human economy existed before capitalism became the dominant economic structure and remains the model of many indigenous economies, including Te Ao Maori. However, the system where personal financial profit can be pursued at the expense of the environment and the well-being of human beings is not the only way to do economy. Social enterprise knows this, and this notion is regaining momentum and informing the Treasury's living standards framework approach to achieve a more complex analysis of, of policy and capital output. The segmentation of for-profit business and charity as two separate parts of the economy can be visualized as follows. And then there's a diagram with a pie chart showing for-profit business as the majority and charity as a small section. The characteristics of for-profit business and of charity are kept separate from each other by strict boundaries, but that these remain the only parts of the whole is reflected in our legal structures. Interaction between the two realms is regulated to maintain the distinction. Hence, the mandate of charity services as gatekeeper, vetting organizations that seek to enter the charity space and declining those that generate profit for personal gain. Representing the relationship that social enterprise has to the charity for-profit business binary is more like this. And then there's a picture of social enterprise in a circle, and that is overlapping with the previous diagram showing for-profit business, and it's labeled capitalist economy. You really kind of need to see these diagrams, so just get the report and have a look at them. Here, the human economy is where multiple forms of capital have value, and the capitalist economy is where value is defined by financial capital alone. In this schematic, there is crossover between the charity for-profit binary and social enterprise, which is where activity categorized as for-profit business with impact exists. 
These are standard businesses that do some form of good with their profit, but within the logic that dominates in the capitalist economy. The company and the other legal structures available in New Zealand are products of the logic where charity and doing good are separate from doing business. Therefore, the fundamental nature of mission that is at the heart of social enterprise is not accommodated by the limited liability company structure or other for-profit legal structures. While the Companies Act and the structure of the limited liability company is accessible to social enterprises in that a would-be social enterprise can set up an LLC and get to work doing their mission as they trade, it is difficult to operate as a social enterprise without undue hindrance, let alone thrive, without significant entrepreneurial capacity and and expensive creative legal work. Despite this, there are some extraordinary organizations doing just that. Part 2. How Social Enterprise is Unduly Affected by Legal Structure In this section, we look at how legal structure affects the social enterprises we interviewed, what the issues are that affect them, and how these are connected directly or indirectly to legal structure. For all the organizations we spoke with, the current legal structure options do not actively help or easily facilitate the process of doing social enterprise, And for the most part, the available legal structures are creating an environment where social enterprise is the square peg in a round hole. The vast majority of those interviewed said they are curtailed by their legal structure to varying degrees, sometimes directly, sometimes in more subtle, indirect ways. A single organization from the research cohort, Little Yellowbird, who are a standard LLC and do not have charitable status, are neutral about their legal structure and are experiencing no hindrances derived from bigger structural forces in the economy. Through this research, we have found three core themes that orientate the relationship that social enterprise has with legal structure that debunk the contention that the LLC legal structure is accessible and sufficient to prevent a social enterprise from being disadvantaged in New Zealand. We look at these three areas in turn. Mission, funding, innovation. 2.1. Mission versus legal structure. The Nature and Substance of Mission for Social Enterprise Difference by Matter of Paradigm Rather than Degree The variety of missions that the organizations we interviewed operate with are broad and far-ranging, but all address a social and or environmental need. In one way or another, each social enterprise wants to change the way the world is so that people and the environment are looked after through business rather than business being to the detriment of people and environment. All the organizations we spoke with are committed to missions that displace the pursuit of profit and the harm that this can have on the environment and people's social and cultural worlds. The mission of a social enterprise is not a derivative of what charity is. It is actually something quite different. Cliff Colhoun from CBC made this distinction. Most people actually quite like the idea of what charity does, and they will choose the one they'll put their money into. So traditionally, charities are dealing with an issue or supporting the community in some way, but they're not necessarily about changing anything. And they enable people to feel good by putting money in, and this helps someone who receives assistance. Whereas we're about changing the circumstances around what's causing the problem and the need. 
Social Enterprise Mission is integral to their business, and it's managed on top of the usual trading activities of typical businesses. Little Yellowbird is committed to the ethical production of cotton clothing and the creation of global supply chains that specifically address the care of the environment and people at every turn and aspect of production and supply. Samantha Jones' agenda is nothing less than world-changing as well. She said, My personal viewpoint is that all businesses should be operating in this whole socially respectful manner. In my opinion, every single business should have to pay the true cost of production from an environmental and social perspective. We asked Fraser McConnell and Alex McCall from the social enterprise Choice how they are fundamentally orientated towards a bigger conceptualization than merely mixing the motivations of standard charity and standard for-profit business. They said, Traditional capitalist business models are subsidized by the environment. They're subsidized by people's well-being, and that's not what we're here to continue on with. We're here to change that direction and show that Business for Good can be achieved using the latest and greatest technology and by putting it in the hands of as many people as possible. We asked Fraser and Alex from Choice about their attitude to the differing notions of personal gain that they have as a social enterprise and how this could be a function of millennial exuberance rather than a fundamental shift in their approach to doing business with mission. They said, We don't care about making any sort of money without purpose. If we want to be advancing society and the social enterprise industry, this is not going to happen just by continuing to do what we've always done, which is to make more and more profit. But we don't care about that. We care about serving a greater purpose for the world. Panapa Ehau from Hikurangi Enterprises, an organization that is developing bioactives from their land to generate economic development for Fanao, talked about the way they combine mission, values, and the business process. He said... Our underlying values are that everything we do has to benefit the land and the people and the well-being of those. So our decision-making framework framework that sits in place is always, does this benefit the land and our people? If it does, then it can move forward to the next space of, is it viable and a commercial process? Jeff Walker from TradeAid asserted that their mission is nothing less than changing the very nature of trading and the essentially exploitive element that for-profit business can too easily get away with under the current system. He said, We're exhibiting the way we think all trading relationships should be. So we'll do things like we'll pay 50 to 80% of our craft orders at the, same t- at the time of placing the order. We believe that this way we're balancing the power relationship we have with our trading partners because we're in a lucky position as New Zealanders and we can use our position to help balance the trading relationship. Michelle Sharp of Kilmarnock considers her organization to be a not-for-loss because no organization could be an enterprise without making money. They trade and compete efficiently and maximize their capacity to deliver so that they can continue to win contracts as an equal player in the field. In other words, they operate just like a for-profit business, but their very reasons for existence and conducting the trade that they do are fundamentally different from a standard for-profit business, because what is different is not the amount of business acumen and strategic vision that powers the organization. Rather, it is what they are using their earnings for, Their workforce is comprised of around 100 people with learning disabilities. The organization has evolved over recent years from its former guise as an IHC sheltered workshop into the social enterprise they are now. Their mandate is to change the marginalizing and undervaluing of people with disabilities that is commonplace in New Zealand society and to evolve and develop models for the future of work that embrace diversity and inclusion in world-leading ways. 
the education and training that they do for their workforce as a matter of course, i.e. not once profit has been calculated, is life-changing for the people that work at Kilmarnock and is affecting the business community that interacts with Kilmarnock by expanding their perception of what diversity can actually be. Eat My Lunch were committed to being a trading entity from the very start. Lisa King said, Our mission is to ensure that no child in New Zealand goes to school hungry. We're not trying to solve poverty or the causes necessarily, but we want to ensure that kids are coming to school and that when they're at school, they've actually got the right nutrition, the right fuel to help them learn and maximise the opportunities when they're at school. We want to do something about poverty, but in a sustainable and scalable way. The missions that motivate all the social enterprises that we spoke with go to the very heart of who and what they are whereby the intent to create impact is paramount. In this regard, social enterprise are not unlike charities with their commitment to do good. However, social enterprises are intent on trading to achieve this because they believe that trade is the best way to ensure sustainability. What is even more important to social enterprises, and this is what really sets them apart from standard charities and for-profit business, is their understanding about how the tools of business and business acumen combined with social or environmental mandates creates enterprise that is greater than the sum of its parts. Herein lies the key issue for social enterprise. No currently available legal structure facilitates all these imperatives. Ill-fitting identity and being the square peg in a round hole, grappling with mission and legal structure at the outset. According to our research, the current legal structures struggle to accommodate the fundamental differences in operation, motivating values, and the different types of capital when a trading enterprise is mission-led. A number of organizations talked us through the process of how they settled on their legal structure in their startup phase and how ill-fitting the set of options were. Choice, for example, are working with an entirely different logic from a charity or for-profit business. Their mission is to subvert the payment structure of multinational electronic card transaction companies and its accompanying mechanisms that saddle merchants with steep fees, extract the fee from the New Zealand economy, and remove consumers' agency. The Choice technology reverses this. Choice are in beta phase of development of their system, so they have considered how they need to be legally structured when their system goes live. Alex McCall and Fraser McConnell said of the initial decision-making process that they went through, The available legal structures haven't helped us a single bit. We need to figure out what's the best possible model so that we can ensure not only that our purpose is being forefront and centre, yet also that our profit is being maximised to serve our purpose. Organisations like Lumio and TradeAid are examples of where their trading operation is part of showing their mission in action. They can model ways of doing fair trade in the case of TradeAid and working cooperatively for Lumio, so both organizations needed structures that allowed them to express their mission. TradeAid have ended up with a complex legal structure that has been developed over their 40-plus years in business as they continually try to put mission first. As they have expanded their operation to a structure that now comprises approximately 30 legal entities of various types, the ongoing administration and compliance costs are detracting from their capacity to innovate. Lumio is a cooperative company, giving them a built-in non-hierarchical structure where shareholder decisions are made by the workers of the company, signaling to external observers their commitment to collaboration. 
This structure, although a variation of the LLC, is not well known or understood for trading. Whilst it furthers their mission, it actually creates a barrier for their progress. More time and energy is required to explain the structure to investors, banks, and other stakeholders. But the cooperative structure is important because they are showing the users of the software what collaboration looks like. Michael Elwood Smith said, And if we can do this well, what we're actually demonstrating is that we can create an organization that grows a successful, scalable business while delivering on a social mission without, for example, an Elon Musk turning up, being a gazillionaire on the back of it, and being back to the 1% of people with 99% of the power and wealth. Patu Aotearoa were encouraged to go down the charity path when Levi Armstrong and his business partners set up Patu five years ago. Levi was determined to have a standard LLC structure because this disrupted the standard model of Maori health and wellness initiatives based on handouts and grants. Instead, Patu have developed a fitness program that harnesses the social dynamics of their predominantly Maori and Pacifica client base that works best when when participants choose to pay for their fitness classes. The Patu model is about fighting against the limits and stigma of being a grant-receiving organization. Levi said, We believe we are at war against these issues. Patu is a weapon, the enemy being not just the health issues, diabetes and obesity, but also the societal issues as well. We set up as a company. We didn't want to rely on government funding, because if the funding tap got turned off tomorrow, there'll be nothing. We want to create revenue streams that can support us to be self-employed. Not registering as a charity has essentially cut Patu off from philanthropic funding and slowed their ability to scale and increase their outreach and therefore their impact. Levi said, Through the five years we've turned down a few funding opportunities because we weren't a charity. So if we had been able to take these, we probably would have had 30 sites around the country now. You know, we would have amplified our impact. We could have stopped someone from committing suicide. I mean, I've had a few bros come in to and tell me, you know, if it wasn't for Patu, I probably wouldn't be here. There have been so many transformations, even bros getting into work. CBEC explicitly did not want to be classed as a charity that could be perceived as reliant on grant funding and all of their hard work and essential recycling service regarded as volunteer work. As a community enterprise, they're all about sustainable and ongoing creation of employment and community. While their membership ownership model as a cooperative society registered under the obscure Industrial and Provident Societies Act 1908 reflects who they are as a community enterprise, it does not come close to notifying what they can do as an expert organization in waste and recycling, amongst other things. Industrial and provident cooperative society models are rare and are not well understood or commonly used for competitive commercial entities. So combining that model with the trading focus has presented difficulties for CBEC. They are not taken seriously during tendering processes, making it difficult to take advantage of commercial opportunities. A simple LLC structure would not work for CBEC because this would not be perceived as community-focused enough and would therefore compromise the credibility of the organization that is so critical to driving engagement with their community. However, trading is what creates ongoing jobs and growth in the community. Cliff Calhoun and Warren Snow set CBEC up in 1989, and Cliff relayed the advice the lawyer they consulted at the time gave them. He said, I don't know if it's perfect, but the cooperative legal structure is probably the most flexible and will give you the most options. 
So CBEC became a cooperative society. So how has it worked for us? We've got a diverse group of enterprises, we do all sorts of stuff, and it seems to have worked for us. But some of the external things have not, which is about how we're viewed and how we're accepted. These are more of a problem rather than actually implementing a legal structure to be able to trade. Kilmarnock is a fully operational, competitive business that is growing despite the crowded contract manufacturing sector in which they are award-winning leaders. In 2011, they lost a crucial contract, which was the stimulus to evolve into the high-performing organization that they are now. Michelle Sharp said, At the time, the loss of the Anzac Poppies contract was devastating, but in retrospect, it was the best thing that ever happened to us. We went from an organization that employed 60-odd people who, day in, day out, would just sit and make poppies, through to the contract manufacturer, who now has a strong understanding of what we excel at, and therefore, in each market, how we need to sell. As a result, each relationship we make with our customers is done on an equal basis and on an even playing field. As soon as we started trading and spreading the word about our new mission and services, the amount of impact increased and continues to to go up. While the idea of not-for-loss disrupts the charity-business binary, this also decentralizes the importance of profit and allows other versions of value into their conceptualization of their operation. So financial capital is important, but it is not their only focus. Michelle said, We just use the money capital to drive others to enable other forms of capital. All these organizations are using the tools of market as commercial enterprises to sustain and scale to achieve their missions. However, what challenged all, save Little Yellowbird, was how to convey the primacy of mission in their commercial offering, both within their organizations as well as externally. The limited liability company has never been the vehicle for accommodating mission in the way that social enterprise needs. The ill fit that the current legal structures create for social enterprises includes perceptual barriers which undermine the legitimacy and competitiveness of social enterprises. Mission, the LLC structure, and the specter of pecuniary gain and social washing. As soon as a trading organization talks about being mission-led and doing good, a set of assumptions come into play for consumers and the business community. One such assumption is that there will be no pecuniary gain for individuals and that surplus profit is either absent or wholly directed toward the mission. What also becomes relevant is the idea that an organization could take the narrative around doing good and use it as part of their marketing without any substance, a phenomenon now referred to as social washing or greenwashing if the false claim is about the environment. This theme came up in our discussions with Peter Frawley and Stuart Donaldson from the Inland Revenue Department and Andrew Phillips from Charity Services. A function of the IRD and Charity Services is to deal with organizations and individuals who contravene the rules around conducting a charitable operation. Protecting the integrity of charitable registration and promoting public trust and confidence in the charitable sector is the reason for the existence of charity services. Pecuniary gain, the different construct of profit in social enterprise, and dishonesty on the part of some organizations that say they are doing good when they are not, came up a lot in the research interviews. What came through clearly from the social enterprises that we spoke with, which included some of the most well-established and innovative social enterprises in New Zealand, was the marked difference in their perspective on pecuniary gain and the way they conceptualize profit, compared with standard for-profit business. 
this is indicative of the different paradigm where social enterprise does purpose, profit, and pecuniary gain alongside the world configured by the charity business binary. In some social enterprises, as is the case for most for-profit businesses, the potential for receiving personal gain is a strong incentive to invest the unpaid time and energy required through the startup stages, especially where the founders are using their family assets as security for the initial funding. However, personal gain in the social enterprise context is often criticized, despite such personal gain being limited by the other values that motivate social enterprises and are put front and center. Panapa Ehau talked about how the issue of pecuniary gain is managed within the context of Hikurangi enterprises and the degree of accountability that is demanded by Fanao. As a social enterprise and as a Maori organization, Hikurangi Enterprises is so intrinsically linked to the broader community within which the organization exists geographically as well as in terms of Te Ao Maori that the two cannot be separated. However, remuneration is important and a form of personal gain as a driver of innovation is also part of Hikurangi Enterprises' operation. Panapa said, while the operation of the organization is not about buying more Audis to put in the garage. Rather, it's about the bigger picture. But there does need to be some mechanism for some personal gain, like two years of hard, hard slog by a couple of individuals and their own personal money that was put into that. It needs some kind of incentive and and acknowledgement. Through the process of hui and the investment roadshow that they have conducted to get the community behind them as Hikurangi Enterprises have become established, they have been routinely challenged on how personal gain works within the organization. Panapa was open in saying that some level of personal gain was necessary if the work was going to get done, saying, Yeah, so we've got challenged on who is this person that's making an individual gain out of the whole structure. You look at the whole structure and there's this point here where essentially resources are being taken out for an individual. And it's as simple as, if that didn't exist, none of this exists. That if this percentage of benefit doesn't go there, then none of this happens. So all the other benefit that comes out doesn't exist. The bigger mandate that effectively references the different paradigm that the activity of Hikurangi Enterprises operates within is indexed by the idea of Audis in the garage. Panapa said, It's like when I went out on the roadshow to do our first lot of capital raise with Farnau, that was the line that I used. It's like, this isn't being done so that I can have an Audi in the garage. I'm quite happy with my 95 Toyota Corolla, although the investors that we got told us that we have to use new vehicles for financial reasons... But it's not about capitalizing off individuals in our community because if we do that, the business model doesn't work because people will stop engaging with the process. It's like a fail-safe mechanism there that if you don't do what you, what you say you're going to do, then the community will bug out and it won't work in the long term. Enshrining Mission and Legal Structure The Importance of Having Some Form of Mission Lock The separation of doing purpose as something that is, in effect, the opposite of doing for-profit business is the way the capitalist economy is set up. So having these two modalities separated whereby they are not seen as naturally part of the same context means that social enterprise, as something other than the norm, carry the burden of proof to show that they are not a corruption of charity or an unsuccessful business. So the issue of building trust looms large for social enterprises from an external brand perspective for business with purpose and internally so that founders and management can show that they are holding themselves personally and publicly accountable. 
There's also the need to ensure that changes in management and ownership can happen without compromising the mission, so that a social enterprise could be sold like a standard LLC could be, but with the mission intact. An LLC is a flexible commercial vehicle that is able to set its own rules within permissible parameters. But there is nothing inherent in the limited liability company structure that can be used to signal mission lock. Voluntarily constitutional restrictions can be adopted, but generally this doesn't convey that mission primacy publicly. Given the background framework of the charity for-profit binary that orientates New Zealand society, government process and law, the perception and acceptance of these are real issues for social enterprises. As a consequence, the links that social enterprises need to go to enshrine their mission for themselves, as well as for external observers, to tell their unique story to the market and broadcast their authenticity as they trade with purpose, are convoluted and generally require expensive lawyering and or marketing. These also have significant and enduring implications in terms of engineering flows of money within the organization. The way the nature and very substance of mission is accommodated by the social enterprises we spoke with, despite the legal structure options, is innovative in itself. In this section, we relate the ways some social enterprises are being able to create mission lock in their legal structure through creative lawyering and or through other mechanisms that have been developed in the social enterprise ecosystem. However, many of the organizations we spoke with are finding they are having to default to charitable structures to create a mission lock, despite the fact that these structures are not suitable for social enterprises. Creative lawyering workarounds that enshrine mission lock in the absence of specific legal options. Leading with mission is integral to how social enterprises operate and want to exist in the world, but being a straight limited liability company makes it very difficult to do this because the limited liability company structure does not traditionally accommodate mission and has no rigor, let alone capacity, to enshrine mission and purpose. Because of the primacy of mission for social enterprises, the ability to entrench it to convey trust and permanency is a necessity born out of the prevailing perception of what charity and for-profit business are in the minds of the public, as well as how this is refracted into the law. Lumia were one of the few organizations we spoke to who have been able to employ creative lawyering without applying for charitable status. Their software platform that facilitates and enshrines collaborative ways of working and versions of participatory democracy necessarily makes it relevant that they operate the company as a collaboration that is explicitly not about command and control hierarchies. From the beginning, they have been a legally created worker-owned cooperative in terms of operation, management, and decision-making, and are a cooperative company by way of legal structure. Michael Elwood-Smith from Lumio said, What it's about is sharing the ownership and the responsibility of ownership with the people who are actually working to create the thing. Lumio's attempt to remain and operate at all levels as a worker cooperative with explicit egalitarian principles of reaching consensus and the need to raise funds to grow and develop in the specific way a tech company needs to has necessitated a process of creative lawyering. They have managed with the structure they have had since founding to develop and grow and have used a variety of methods to raise funds and develop, including volunteer labor and open source structure PledgeMe, issuing shares that come with no or limited ownership and evolving their revenue stream around the platform. However, they have reached a point in the development of their company where they need to raise equity, discussed further in section 
to take the software to the next level. In order to preserve and maintain their collaborative working structure and not explicitly value the membership part of the company so that members can continue to come and go, they are in the process of creating, via an expensive and bespoke legal process, a holding cooperative company that will free up Lumio as an LLC to offer ordinary equity to investors. It has been a long, convoluted process to enshrine this aspect of their operation and their mission and avoid charitable status. Michael said, We've been pioneered in so many ways. We're a little worn out from pioneering and now focusing on making a sustainable business. However, I don't think we would have survived if we didn't have the cooperative structure and conscious development of values, culture and working practice. It's that practice of building and the principles of collaboration that have been fundamental. This fatigue created by the constant requirement to work around the system was talked about by all the social enterprises we spoke with to varying degrees. This is important because these added burdens for social enterprises leave less time and energy for innovation, discussed further later. Developments in the social enterprise ecosystem that compensate for lack of mission in the limited liability company structure for social enterprises. A few of the other organizations we spoke with were able to leverage other mechanisms within the social enterprise ecosystem to signal mission to external observers, in particular, while maintaining an LLC structure and avoiding charitable status. Others used these same mechanisms to market themselves as something other than a standard charity. Eat My Lunch is a case in point. It is an LLC who explicitly set out to not be a charity and wanted to trade to create a sustainable business that could provide enduring support to children who are routinely coming to school without lunch, as well as to the schools and teachers who are tasked with looking after and educating them. Eat My Lunch rejected the idea of being a charity or having a charitable arm because... It's restrictive. There's a lot of red tape, bookkeeping. We don't want to have to run two sets of accounts, two sets of legal processes, or literally two organizations running alongside each other. So really, it was the simplicity and ease of operation that drove us to choose an LLC. And also because we felt that that was the best way to run our buy one, give one model. So when someone buys a lunch, the give, what Lisa refers to free lunch aspect of the model as, is intrinsic in that so this always activates a give. So we built it into the cost of goods of delivering a buy lunch and we felt that it was actually the most genuine and true to the proposition of buy one, give one. But this doesn't mean that it has been easy for them operating as an LLC and having impact. Eat My Lunch have received for the most part very positive press and their organization is growing. However, the fact that they are not a charity has created some controversy for them and specifically accusations of lack of transparency and social washing. Being a standard limited liability company and operating differently is confounding for many observers. Lisa King said, I think people have high expectations of Eat My Lunch. What I don't think people understand is that we're not a charity. After three years in business, people still often refer to us as a charity because they can't get their heads around the fact that you can actually be something different. I think people are so used to the concept of a traditional charity and that they do good, whereas businesses don't do good, they just make money. So the minute you say you do something good, they go, oh, well, you must be a charity. Our model hasn't really been done here before, so people can't see what we do. What has helped Eat My Lunch remain a limited liability company and has been one of the reasons why they haven't had to go down the charity route is that consumers can see the impact that they can do with their money when they purchase from Eat My Lunch. 
This catering to what amounts to an increasing sense of personal social responsibility on the part of more and more individuals via added dimensions to their buying power, as well as the provision of the volunteer space that Eat My Lunch offer, are new components in the market that Eat My Lunch are cleverly working with. What they're also doing is creating visibility around what they do through increased public reporting of the impact they are doing. In November 2018, Eat My Lunch published their first version of a comprehensive impact statement on their website. This details how their operation works and what they are doing in terms of impact, and is portrayed in numbers. For example, close to 1.2 million lunches have been given to children. Eat My Lunch do this reporting voluntarily, and they are able to do as much or as little public reporting as they choose. Lisa was reflective on this. She said, I think it's interesting what is expected of us in terms of reporting. We've put it on ourselves to report how many lunches we give. We don't say how much that costs us, and we don't share our financials, which recently, you know, the media have questioned us on that and why we aren't doing that, because charities do it. But we are not a charity. The importance of impact reporting is a counter to the perception of dishonesty and is an important process of communicating and educating a public and business community that is not yet familiar with social enterprise is being recognized by social enterprises across the board as essential for marketing their business and the ecosystem within which they sit. Lumio have produced a whole handbook about how to run a cooperative organization, which doubles as both an education piece and as a version of an impact statement. For 15 years, TradeAid have been on the vanguard of evolving impact reporting in this country. Their latest version, TradeAid Social Accounting Statement, which is available online, is a comprehensive document that details how the philosophy of doing fair trade works on an operational level. The document also relates the multifaceted ways that their methodological approach to fair trade impacts their trading partners' lives. This statement is annually updated and developed to impart more and more insights around the importance of fair trade. They are also very active in speaking about what they do, and have a whole set of educational resources for schools and businesses about fair trade. Some interviewees identified the lack of definition of what a social enterprise is as problematic, with some identifying the need for an external body to certify social enterprises as being what they claim to be. Jeff Walker said that TradeAid were starting to use the idea that they are a social enterprise in their branding more and more, but he identified the set of risks with this. I guess the risk for us is that because there is a lack of wholehearted definition, we risk association with other businesses who can say that they are social enterprises but don't follow through. So, for example, we have the same issue with fair trade or with organic. So we pick certification bodies where we can say these entities have recognized that we actually are this, and we can certify it. So having some degree of something that proves it, I think, is quite important. Little Yellowbird has a constitution which says that they won't necessarily make decisions that will maximize shareholder profit. At the moment, because Samantha Jones owns a significant majority of the shareholding, she is cognizant of her ability to hold tight to the mission of the company, but this is not set in stone. Samantha said... In a way, it's difficult to say this piece in our constitution actually locks in our mission because I could still change that. But we made an attempt to make that as part of our legal structure as much as we could. What Yellowbird did opt to do, in addition to this provision in their constitution, was to become a B Corp. Little Yellowbird has been certified for two years, and as soon as they had been in business for a year, a requirement for certification, they started the process of acquiring B Corp status.
They opted for B Corp because it was all-encompassing. Samantha said there were so many certifications they could have gone for, but B Corp was the most rigorous for their company and industry. The B Corp status operates as an externally bestowed identifier for Little Yellowbird. Samantha said, I think it's important that we have at least something. A lot of people ask us, oh, what certifications do you have? I think people just like to categorize. I think it's just this weird psychological thing. While there are fewer than 15 B Corps in New Zealand, and the certification is not well known in this country, the B Corp status does help with recognition in her industry, especially with the amount of unethical production in clothing manufacturing around the world. Marking the company as legitimately different from the mass manufacturers of clothing is integral to running the business and the premise upon which her product is positioned in the market. As part of being a B Corp, Little Yellowbird produces an impact statement annually. However, most of the social enterprises we spoke with found they need to default to charitable models, either trusts or a limited liability company with charitable status, in order to attempt to make up the mission-oriented shortfalls of the LLC structure, despite the fact that these not-for-profit structures are not suitable for social enterprises. The inevitability of needing to default to charitable status or have a charitable arm to be able to pursue mission. Choice have recently been through a creative and expensive lawyering process to formulate a bespoke legal structure that will allow them to pursue their mission and be a tech company and operate with the degree of agility that this requires. For them, including a charitable trust in the mix of their organization as one half of their structure was in part defaulting to charitable constructs to pursue their mission, but for them at least, it is also a clever combination of the current options. When they go operational and at scale, the plan is to set up the Choice Foundation, which will be a charitable trust. This will sit alongside, rather than as a parent entity, Choice Limited, which will stay as a standard limited liability company. So transaction fee payments for the payment service will come into the organization via the Choice Foundation, and it will be this entity that will redistribute half of the fee to Choice Limited and the other half, as instructed by the consumer, to the charity of the consumer's choice. Currently, there is an informal mission lock on Choice Limited by virtue of the fact that the founders retain total control. The trustee of the Choice Foundation will govern how it derives income, how it is distributed to the nominated charities, and what is paid to Choice Limited, so the mission lock will live with the Choice Foundation. Choice Limited can be a tech company and attract investment accordingly. This dual structure is expensive to create and complex to manage. Choice could afford the legal bills which mitigate the barriers presented by the legal structure because the individuals behind it have a track record and they have already attracted over $1 million in non-equity funding, an exceptional amount for a New Zealand startup, let alone a social enterprise. However, other organizations are not in a position to afford bespoke legal structures or to make charitable structures work as well for them. For Patu Aotearoa, being a limited liability company has been part of their mission, but being fundamentally orientated by Te Ao Māori means that the benefit of what they're doing is masked behind the charity-business divide. So the idea that a business in the Māori wellness fitness space could have more impact than the standard social welfare model is difficult to convey. They have done cost-benefit analysis with Deloitte to generate data that reveals how their model is working, and they are now in the process of developing what they call the, the Meke meter to extend their wellness model. In order to do this, they have had to concede to setting up a charitable trust, set up pro bono by Russell McVeigh, but otherwise being a significant cost, so that they can access funding to extend what they have already shown is a good methodology to engage with Fanau and others in the wellness space. 
Levi Armstrong said that in an ideal world, they would not have to have two entities to do the range of things they do. The whole process of setting up a charity has been about getting access to philanthropic funding and being able to not pay tax on some of the money that they are earning in their business. Patu are aware of the trade-off of the flexibility that an LLC structure gives them versus the funding that a charity can access as well as the tax relief. Nonetheless, there is frustration for them over the way that the tax that they are paying as Patu Aotearoa can, can then get passed on by government to other organizations with charitable status that they are trying to do what they do, but with less success. Vivian Lee, who was involved with Feel Good Period, a social enterprise that was set up with a limited liability company structure at the outset, said that the small startup struggled to make much headway as a social enterprise and eventually ceased trading after a year of attempting to operate in what was construed as a charity space. Feel Good Period was intent on supplying homeless women with sanitary products via a buy-one-give-one model. The group of students who started the company found it very difficult to operate because of a lack of understanding of what social enterprise is and the suspicion around there being a limited liability company without charitable status or not being a straight charity. Vivian said, People would ask, what is it that's preventing you from getting that charitable status? A lot of people have never heard of social enterprises for starters, so to them the business was just very strange. It put us under a lot of pressure because we were constantly going back and questioning ourselves, going, okay, so what should we actually be then? It seemed like you had to choose charity or business. But I think it was quite important to us at the time that we weren't just going to be just another charity. There were already existing charities and we wanted to try something different. The cost of setting up a charity for a group of students who were still at university was prohibitive. So trying something different was about creating a sustainable model through trading because the ongoing need of women for these products could not be tied to the vagaries of charity and the inconsistent supply that this often created. And women who could pay for products would always pay. However, the organization was stymied by the perception of impropriety and the lack of understanding around what social enterprise is as reflected in complaints on their Facebook page. The comments were about how Feel Good Period was taking advantage of an issue to make money, etc. In reflecting on why this happened, Vivian said, I think the public perception of companies is traditionally that their first priority is profit. And so this notion of an organization using business methods but not prioritizing profit first, above all, is quite unusual for most people who haven't encountered social enterprise. It's how many people think companies have always worked. All that history is there, but it's very different for social enterprises. When people see a social enterprise and they're like, I don't know what that is, and the closest thing you look like is a company because you're in a company structure, they will ask, but if you're a company, why are you also doing these charitable things? And so they get, the, they get a bit confused, I guess. While Komarnik is managing to make the limited liability company structure with charitable status that is wholly owned by charitable trust work, they too have challenges. Signaling what they are to themselves and the people who work with them as employees and as contract clients is very important to their identity. While they have strategically created a business and trading operations out of what was a sheltered workshop, they also maintain a charitable status. On the one hand, in their interactions with their clients, the charitable status gives them a reputational edge, whereby the renewal of contracts that they have just been through, for example, were straightforward because their clients trust them because they perceive a charity as trustworthy. However, in every other respect, the charitable status continues to be a hindrance in their commitment to trade as part of their mission. They win business based on merit, 
not because they have charitable status or were once a standard charity. And while this will keep some customers recontracting with them in the short term, the only way they have continued to grow and expand is because they are a highly efficient, innovative company that also has a mission to embrace diversity. So having charitable status really works against them. We asked Michelle Sharp and Tim Jones what the disadvantages of their charitable status are. Oh, unfortunately, there are many, many more of those because, in fact, we're more hindered by it. So let's start first. What does any organization require in order to survive? You need access to market, so you need to be able to trade. You need access to finance, either seed funding or, t- or capital for growth. You need access to R&D money from time to time to do the things you need to do because you're trying to be innovative like we are. So basically, you need all the same things as any other organization that's a full profit one. We're no different. Yet, we haven't got access to any of those things because of our status. So every time we want to access, let's say, R&D money, which is the latest one, we've got a very, very exciting project to launch, but it requires some significant R&D money. I've spent a year convincing Callahan Innovation that it's the right thing to do to actually put R&D into us. Because their mandate says they can't support not-for-profits or charitable organisations, we're helping them change that. But the point being is that it becomes very hard. It's been work, and we're prepared to do that because we're prepared to make a change for everybody else. But a lot of the time, it feels like what we do is kind of for the first time, and it is exhausting because there's no front door to anything that we do. And you're having to have the same conversation over and over again, which is okay and we don't mind doing it, but we want to be seen as thought leaders in in the sector. So that's okay, but there's no doubt that our charitable status hinders us more than it helps us because of those things. So while having the charitable status is vital for Mission Lock, because Kilmarnock are intent on trading competitively, the charity label, and in particular the perception of what this is meant to be in this country, is effectively curtailing their innovation. Up until several years ago, Kilmarnock was still housed in the building that they had occupied for 50 years. They decided that they needed a new purpose-built factory to accommodate their growth and expansion and to communicate their status as a serious commercial enterprise. Michelle said, We were in an old site that we'd been in for 50 years. So one of the issues with having a charitable status is, if your building doesn't look like this, gesturing to the new building, immediately people assume that everything you do is bad quality, and immediately they want to pay you substandard. So it's that kind of thinking, because actually it's the opposite. One of the things we pride ourselves on is our quality. But because our environment didn't reflect that, we weren't being given the chance to actually even have the conversations or be around the table with organisations who demanded that quality. Because the charitable status, coupled with the look of the building, was actually hindering us. Whereas in a funny way, if we were for profit, I think it might have worked to our advantage because they might think, oh, well, you're clearly not doing this to make a ton of money. Yet moving here suddenly meant that organisations are going, ah, you're actually real. You're a grown-up business. We had a guy from Croxley Recycling. He turned up and he said, oh, I was kind of expecting two guys in a shed with a shared hammer. And we're going, no, this is real business. We won the deal just by him coming in here and seeing our e-waste work. CBEC is an incorporated cooperative society with charitable status. They don't use the term cooperative society publicly because it is not well understood, and the charitable status is more of a hindrance than an aid, and in particular, the whole perception piece for CBEC as a charity makes it difficult for them to compete for contracts. 
The community ownership model of a cooperative society reflects who they are as a community enterprise, but not their high level of expertise, skill, and thought leadership in the waste industry, for example. Community enterprise is too easily connected to the volunteer sector and the assumption that they have no skill. When we asked Erin Akara from Terunanga a Iwi o Napuhi how having a ch- parent charitable entity that owns a series of limited liability companies with charitable status works for them, she said, I'm not sure it does help us. I think it's just something we've had to do, and so we do it. It's relevant to the people like CFO and our CEO who need to know about the taxes and things like that. It's an imposed structure on our Maori way of seeing and being in the world. Panapa Eha from Hikarangi Enterprises talked about how his organization is adept at having a foot in both worlds and that the legal separation of the parent entity for social purposes from the other entities which do the commercial operations was the only way they could structure their organization. We needed two entities because you couldn't have commercial and social together. Maori Enterprise, Charitable Status, and the Ongoing Legacy of Colonialism While leading with the identity of Maori Enterprise is now a mitigating factor that allows organizations like Hikarangi Enterprises and Whale Watch to trade more easily than other social enterprises, the bigger context of the ongoing response to the economy is important as well. Whale Watch, as the phenomenally successful business that it is, has the mode of operating effectively across two worlds down to a fine art, and their foundation is strong so they can do what we want to do rather than what we have to do. While Whale Watch's legal structure is relatively complex, they have been pragmatic and have worked around and with the structures that were on offer because they had to, and the very survival of their people depended on this. Kawahi Napura said, With the current legal structure that we operate in, we seem to operate fine. We're managing. There's nothing that overly concerns us. But we seem to be able to blend the two worlds together quite nicely. So rather than us sitting there complaining about how the environment is, we've just moved on. We try and work within what we have. There's a sense, though, that there's a subversive element at play in the use of legal structure by Maori Enterprise to safeguard to our Maori ways of doing business, which is a human economy model from Pakeha ways of doing business in a more capitalist mode. In other words, the separation of the business arm from the arm that looks after the whanau, the wider community, and the environment on multiple levels means that the latter is effectively safeguarded by having both. While the dual structures serve to mitigate the human, i.e. not just Maori, potential for mission drift, and the legal structure looks familiar to external observers, having two entities is also working to protect Maori from the historical relationship that Maori have had with Pakeha in direct and indirect ways. What Maori have done, as demonstrated by companies like Whale Watch, Patu, and Hikarangi Enterprises, and iwi organizations like Te Runanga Aiwi o Napuhi, is that they have not forgotten, despite the changes to New Zealand since, how to live their values in the midst of the dominant Pakeha economic system. It is not so much that Maori have had something that Pakeha do not have. Rather, organizations like Hikarangi Enterprises and Whale Watch are able to see how much more scope doing business in the human economy gives them than standard for-profit business does. Kawahi Napora from Whale Watch said, Colonization took our people's mana away over time. 
And what is helping to return it is the brilliant entrepreneurship of Whale Watch and the enduring capacity to work across two worlds and arguably use legal structures as they exist at the moment to temper the potential excesses and political issues that can beset communal ownership and create a separation of a Maori domain from what looks like a standard business domain. So while current legal structure options, including the limited liability company and the use of charitable status and trusts, along with limited partnerships, are working for Maori, this is because of astute entrepreneurial design. The molding of legal structure to support Maori-led initiatives to lift whānau out of poverty, halt suicide rates, provide meaningful employment and support, and allow people to live and thrive on ancestral lands is a nuanced, highly entrepreneurial solution designed by Maori for their people. 2.2. Funding versus Legal Structure The relationship that social enterprises have with funding, equity, and investment is problematic because they are neither a charity nor a for-profit business. With the legal structure environment that we have in New Zealand that effectively only recognizes an organization that does good as a charity and one that makes a profit as a for-profit business, multiple issues arise for organizations intent on being a profit-with-purpose business. Structural barriers are created by the legal structure options. Neither the limited liability company or the other options adequately enshrine mission and convey the business acumen and capacity of an organization. Other issues arise more circuitously via perceptual realities that become real barriers when social enterprises interact with institutions and individual investors and when they go looking for debt or equity. These are derived from the prevailing logic that dominates our economic system. Such perceptual constructs generate a set of assumptions that look like this. First, business acumen. Charities have none. Second, efficiency. Charities have none. Third, financial profit. Organizations that do good do not make a profit because they are not capable of doing so, nor should they do so either. Fourth, doing good. This is only done by charities. For-profit business can, but it can only be superficial, or they just say they do it because it's trendy or it helps marketing. Matthew Lexon from Envision talked about the position that community enterprise organizations like CBEC and Waiuku Zero Waste still find themselves in when they are looking for investment or debt. He said they are in a position that is counter to the mainstream which makes it hard when you're going to traditional institutions for support, such as for finance. You're on the back foot because you're not normal. This not being normal means that the relationship that funding and investment institutions have with social enterprises, as well as others that procure from social enterprises or engage social enterprises for services, are intricately wound up with legal structure, as this reflects the normalized logic of charity versus for-profit business, and individuals' and organizations' perspectives of this. This also has a bearing on how cash flow works for some organizations as well. In this section, we discuss these issues in relation to organizations that are in the startup phase versus those that are established and are intent on growth and scaling. So the nature of the relationship that social enterprises have with banks, investors, and or philanthropic funding organizations is based on the social enterprise legal structure to a large extent. Capital raising, social enterprise legal structure, and their mission. Banks. Being a limited liability company for a social enterprise at startup means that, that it will likely not meet criteria to receive philanthropic funding, 
but it also means that if the organization presents a business plan to the bank indicating how they intend to do good, this can shut doors for them as well. As a newly formed startup and a standard limited liability company, Eat My Lunch tried to borrow from the banks, but they got rejected. The bank manager said to us, there's no way you're going to make money by giving away free stuff, so they didn't give us a loan. So we actually started this business without any external funds. It was all just from our own savings. A chance meeting with the CEO of the Bank of New Zealand ignited their relationship with the traditional bank. In terms of legal structure and getting the relationship with BNZ off the ground, Lisa King credits an alignment of values and their sound business structure and the sustainability of their model as what formed the basis of their relationship with BNZ. However, while being a straight LLC made them more recognizable to the bank, Lisa contends that it was the, the give that actually makes them more robust and therefore worth lending to. If you look at our financials and our models and the way that we cost everything, it's way beyond what a startup of our size and age would do. So I think because of the give element, it actually makes us far more rigorous in our commercial model. Because we have to make sure it works. Because you've got this extra cost that you have to cover. The negative perception on the part of banks about social enterprise activity and the doing impact mandate is amplified if the organization has charitable status and affects bigger companies like Kilmarnock as well. They found that being a charity tends to mean that their work is likely to be substandard and your quality is poor. This can apply to banks as well. Michelle Sharp talked us through how they worked around the perception of what a charity is meant to be and the blindness of the banking community when they went looking for funding to build their purpose-built building, Basecamp. When we wanted to get funding for this $12 million new build, the bank went and looked at us on paper and they turned us down because of our charitable status. So it required us to go through and say, actually, you need to look at us through a different lens. You need to actually strip out all of this because if we chose to, we'd operate as a factory. So actually, look at what a good business it is. We just had the, have the capacity and choose to reinvest all of that for good for the good of everyone else. We didn't meet their credit criteria. It was high risk because we were a charity. The second you say charity, they're like, oh, charity mentality. Surely you're not underpinned by good commercial sense. You probably have something really ama- some really amazing do-gooders, but the assumption is that you're getting donations. Therefore, you're throwing money away, or you're not being efficient, they think. We're really nice people who care so much about what we do, but they think the reality is we probably haven't got a strong commercial background. In fact, the reverse is true here. Both Michelle Sharp and Tim Jones have considerable international corporate experience. Kilmarnock did secure funding from the BNZ, but it was not a straightforward process. Michelle said with exasperation rather than jest. So I had to trick someone to come out to see me from the bank for half an hour and managed to keep him for five and a half. I didn't actually keep him hostage, just saying, until he met our demands, but I needed to convince him. And it's like every deal like that that we have to do, we have to go above and beyond to prove ourselves because the first impression about being a charity, we do it every time. I mean, we do succeed in this, but the point is, if we were able to have some hybrid legal status that allowed us to have a mission lock but still give credibility as a business, that would be amazing. I mean, we carry on in spite of that, but something that was recognized would be fantastic. Matthew Lexon from Envision and Zero Waste Network talked about his experience with banks and community enterprises. 
Our bank offers Envision lines of credit all the time. Despite the company having no real security and only surviving contract to contract, they seem comfortable lending on the basis of future earnings and understand our legal structure, LLC with a single shareholder. On the other hand, when we've turned up with a much stronger proposition, like a community enterprise with a long-term contract from Auckland Council to operate a recycling and refuse facility, we struggle to get money from any of the banks. We can borrow against assets like a forklift or something, but not against future earnings for cash flow. All they seem to see is enthusiastic amateurs running a charity. They don't seem to recognise it as a business that will trade and needs cash just like any other business to survive. In a recent case, rather than just lending to the LLC or even the two registered charitable trust shareholders, they wanted to have personal loans from the individual trustees of the trusts. And then we're back to the same old problem of a volunteer trustee going, hell no, I'm not putting my house on the line for this, which seems like a perfectly reasonable response. When a social enterprise is trying to access debt funding required to purchase assets, funding for the establishment phase or getting ready for a new contract, funding institutions look for security in the form of assets or personal guarantees. For social enterprises that use profits for impact as opposed to retaining profits and building up equity, or construct costs to business differently and have limited or no ability to purchase assets in the first place, as grant funding often isn't available for purchasing capital assets, the requirement to provide a personal guarantee is not uncommon. But it, but it, but is a significant and curtailing factor in the growth of early-stage social enterprises. This requirement puts even more pressure on social enterprises with charitable status and community enterprises that prohibit any personal gain within their legal structure because directors giving guarantees or offering up their assets as security are taking all the risk with no prospect of receiving a corresponding benefit beyond a market rate salary. Social enterprises present a conundrum for banks when approached for lending. Kuf Kohun from CBEC said the way banks struggle to quantify what they are has long been an issue for them. One of the biggest issues for me has been getting people outside of the organisation to understand we can trade as a community enterprise cooperative with charitable status. But if we want to borrow money, suddenly the doors close all over the place really quickly because CBC has no individual owner. There's a community that owns it. And so a bank could take that a community organisation to court to get whatever they needed back from bad trading. Yes, they could maybe get to the directors, and they could have to pay if the bank could prove negligence. But who's going to want to take a community organisation to court that's doing good work? So the bank is going, ah, this is a very difficult situation to be in. CBC have been in business now since 1989, so they have history, and they have been able to secure lending. But banks struggle with their mission plus legal structure and the risk that this presents. Cliff indicated that it hasn't got any easier with banks. Personal relationships with bankers help, but when a contract comes through and a community enterprise needs to scale up, the perception of who they are, as demarcated by legal structure, gets in the way. Banks are happy to provide banking services when your turnover is $3.5 million, but when it comes to borrowing, that's when the barriers come up. When we spoke with Julia Jackson and Sonia Harvey from Kiwi Bank, they concurred. They said... From a legal point of view, I don't know how you would register any security against a charity. And while accepted charities can have assets, they can have loans against those assets. The optics of that, of enforcing that, isn't ideal for a bank. It's a reputational risk. The assumption is that doing good is not good from a financial point of view. Again, as defined by what legal structures are meant to be. 
Julia and Sonia from KiwiBank delineated their perspective on this. Obviously, company owners have the commitment to the business to make it succeed, but there's a different focus with social enterprise. Any money that they're putting into the business is utilised for the good, so they're not necessarily retaining the profits, whereas in a traditional lending situation we'd expect them to retain profits, increasing equity in the business. But they're running the business to free up capital to do good. As it's a different way we have to look at it, our rules and regulations around how we lend would need to change on that basis. Julian Sonia also noted, What's wrong with the company structure in terms of what we're trying to do with social entrepreneurship and social enterprise at KiwiBank is it's not just legislation in itself that issues lie in the context of what those organisations can and cannot do. So it goes back into charity law and ideas of issues of responsibility and what trustees are allowed to do. And so I think that's what the company structure doesn't allow for or account for is that a social enterprise tries and does things which fit with charitable purposes or let's just call it impact, which isolates them from sources of capital that might achieve that. KiwiBank are seeing the barrier of the charity versus for-profit divide that is enshrined in law. As a financial institution, they are making intentional steps to support social enterprises through the creation of different types of funds in order to do so. The drivers for the change that is happening in KiwiBank, at least, are reflecting broader changes in society. But as Julie and Sonia indicated, it is also about the deepening experiences of staff with social enterprises and their evolving perspectives about social enterprises. Anthony Rohan from Fairground Accounting noted a similar observation for other banks as well. However, while banks are evolving, it tends to be at a higher level rather than at the coalface. Matthew Lexon from Envision and Zero Waste Network had a perspective on this and how a new legal structure for social enterprises would help. He said, If we had another legal structure, access to capital would be easier for us. While the banks have had this road to Damascus experience and have changed their tune in the last few years, it's still only at the highest level. The rhetoric around supporting social enterprise is high, but when you actually go into a branch and fill out a loan application to get working capital for your new enterprise, it's still no different to what it was like 10, 15 years ago. So it's taking a long time for the rhetoric to filter down. I think a new legal entity would help that process. Other debt raising mechanisms. A number of the organizations we spoke with have tried alternative capital raising processes because they have had so much trouble with standard institutions. They do this to engage around their story and impact directly with would-be investors. Eat My Lunch, for example, did a Pledge Me debt campaign that was one of the first social bonds issued in this country. The success of this was multidimensional. While it raised funds, the education piece achieved was equally, if not more, important. Lisa King said, We did two rounds of crowdfunding on Pledge Me. The second one we did was a debt lending campaign. We could have borrowed that money from the bank, it would have been way cheaper, because we ended up paying 6% interest back to the people who lent us money, which is quite high. But again, the reason for that was we actually wanted people to be invested in the business, and for anyone to be part of it. But for us, it was also really important to have the visibility, you know, around wider community involvement. We were the first ones to do a debt lending campaign in New Zealand, and it was a social bond as well, so not only did they get their interest back, they also got to give a lunch as part of that every month. So it was quite a different, very innovative kind of crowdfunding concept. Lisa indicated that their bank did not question their business acumen when they ended up paying more interest. Rather, they were comfortable because the backup option if the crowdfund didn't reach the target because they could see how this process created profile. 
the equity space. In the equity space, legal structure is entwined in a complex relationship with perception on the part of investors and investor organizations. Issues around giving ownership rights with share acquisition and very creative and expensive legal advice. Lumio are a case in point. They have reached a phase in their development as an organization where they need significant funds to really scale in the way they are capable of, but still retain the cooperative decision-making management structure, which is integral to their mission. Since their funding in 2012, they have escalated the forms of mechanisms to bring in funding and various forms of equity. Recently, they have issued redeemable preference shares. Michael Elwood Smith said... The RPS structure is an instrument that allows shares to be redeemed from the company back to the shareholder rather than sold on to another shareholder. They provide a capped return on investment. Dividends issued at directed discretion of normally 8% of RPS value per year and potential for bonus dividends. Preferences given to RPS holders over work members. In the first RPS round in late 2015, we were able to raise US $475,000 and convert the social loan. In the 2018 round, we raised a further US $225,000 with similar terms to the first round. These funds enable a budget to develop the business further. However, we will likely need more capital to scale the business. Our success with RPS has come with personal investors. However, the RPS structure doesn't work for most formal funding institutions, restricting the amount of capital we can raise with this instrument. Lumio have reached a point where change is required. And so, I think this is why it's interesting to have this conversation about legal structures now. Because when we've gone out seeking investment, we've tried almost everything under the sun, except normal ordinary equity in the company. And the feedback that's come from investors has pretty much been, we like what you're doing, we can see the growth that's happening, we'd like to invest, but we can't invest in that structure. Their legal structure is an integral part of who they are as a social enterprise, but it is a barrier for them. Equity is essential to allow them to compete in the highly competitive software industry, so the barrier for would-be investors is that the shares come with no controlling stake in the company to protect the mission lock, and the dividend payable is not at the level of standard equity return in the tech space. Up to now, while Lumio have been able to bring individual angel investors into the whole story of Lumio in order to really grow and scale, they now need serious capital. This will need to come from equity firms or bigger investors who balk at the cooperative structure of the company. For Lumio, because of their mission, it is not enough to be an LLC. In fact, it would be detrimental to their brand to merely be a standard LLC. Their need to have the worker-owned cooperative collaborative work structure is imperative. Lumio have found a way to get equity via expensive and clever legal advice. They looked at several options. One was public listing, but they need more capacity within the business to not only grow the company to the size needed to do this, but to also launch this. Another option was to carve off the trading part from the doing good part and have a separate charity arm versus a business arm system. But this was too difficult because it still did not accommodate the need for cooperative management that is so integral to who they are. So, they are considering setting up a non-trading company called Lumio Co-op 2, which will issue the membership shares so that Lumio, the subsidiary software company, is free to offer equity in exchange for investment. This system maintains the cooperative management and decision-making ethos, allows members to come and go without valuing the company and having to pay or be paid out large amounts relative to this value, and allows them to operate and compete in the fast-moving, highly competitive tech environment. 
Choicer are in the process of enshrining owner membership decision-making structures in a similar way to Lumio. In order to bring in investment and give equity in a way that does not allow would-be equity partners to shift the mission of the business, they are moving to what they call a stewardship model, which is similar to worker-owned cooperative. They will have shares with no governance rights, and governance shares that will only go to select team members. While team members can have capital shares as well, and people with both types of shares could compromise the mission in favor of potential profit, they will safeguard against this by building in a year-long assessment period before a team member could be offered a stake in the company. This process of making sure the people they bring on board are values-aligned and continue to be so is something they have given a lot of thought to. Eat My Lunch brought in Foodstuffs North Island as an investor in late 2017. The mission of Eat My Lunch was the first line of the shareholder agreement. The capacity to scale and potentially reach their target of 25,000 give lunches a day in the future has become viable with the partnership with Foodstuffs because they now have access to its supply chain, distribution networks, and purchasing power with suppliers. The strategic partnership between Eat My Lunch and Foodstuffs is unique in this country at the moment. It has been Eat My Lunch's social enterprise capacity and innovation that has brought this about, despite their legal structure. The use of the limited partnership legal structure is sometimes touted as a reasonable hybrid compromise for social enterprises to mitigate the default to charitable status that many organizations find themselves having to do to lock in mission. Hikurangi Enterprises has a limited partnership in the mix as a way of partnering with private equity and being able to retain its charitable status and the benefits that come with this in terms of tax. However, when they went looking for individual and institutional investment for the medicinal cannabis operation, they were advised by their investment advisors and investment bankers that the limited partnership structure could curtail the amount of people that would want to engage with them if they led with this. They decided to do the equity round as an LLC, a company, and while the limited partnership structure would have retained the tax benefits of being a charity, their broker urged them to keep things simple. The loss of tax benefit was potentially offset by profit that they stand to make. However, while they conceded to the structure of the legal entity, they were resolute about the control of the company and what this meant for their mission lock. We brought in institutional investors to raise funds for the cannabis company. Now we gave up more than 50% share of our ownership so that we could get the money that we needed. But within our subscription agreements and all the legal documents, we've stated that we keep control. What we don't want as a company is to have investors come in and literally buy the company out and take the operations away from Ruatoria to Auckland because it costs less to produce the product there. And so we've used really good lawyers, and you've got to pay ridiculous amounts of money for really good lawyers to make sure that it's watertight, because the people that we're engaging have lots of financial backing and have really good lawyers too. You know, we need to be at the same level as them. So there's a cost incurred through the, through the doing of that. It's just the cost of doing business in our way, I guess. So across the board, social enterprise negotiations with debt and funding institutions are made problematic by the legal structure they have and the way they are all attempting to enshrine their mission and trade with this front and center. Philanthropic funding organizations and social enterprise legal structure. Having charitable status means that funding from philanthropic organizations is theoretically available. 
However, apart from startup funding in the early phase, this is generally not sought by social enterprises. The irony is that the cost of setting up a charity and ongoing compliance is expensive and time-consuming, and money and time are scarce commodities in the beginning of the life of any business, let alone a social enterprise. In the startup phase, WhaleWatch got funding to go into business via an organization called the MANA Foundation, who, according to Kawahi Napora, understood Marai ownership, whereas a traditional bank didn't. The grants in the early stages were crucial to the development of WhaleWatch. Not being eligible for funding offered by philanthropic organizations has been an issue for Patu Aotearoa. Levi Armstrong's contention that they could have had more Patu chapters operational if they had had access to philanthropic funding earlier in their trajectory and therefore maybe saved more Fanao from suicide strongly demonstrates a disadvantage of the current legal structures. However, whilst philanthropic organizations are aware of the issues that are occurring with social enterprises, they see things from a different perspective. We spoke with Raywin Jones of Well Energy Trust, a Waikato-based philanthropic organization. They, like most such organizations, are bound by the trustee to provide grants only to charitable organizations, but they can invest in social enterprises. Raywin said that applications for charitable grants are oversubscribed by an estimated 300%. However, they see the value of seed funding and are looking for ways that grant funding could be used to support this. But the issue for an organization like Well Energy Trust is that seed funding does not routinely achieve what they are trying to do in terms of a blended finance model and developing investable opportunities. Raywin said, It's great to have incubators, but to be honest, not many businesses that come out of incubators become investable propositions in the short term. We're looking to find opportunities for impact investment. So, for that, we need organizations that have scale and are investable propositions. Well Energy Trust are considering how they can respond to the changing environment in New Zealand. They want to move to a more collaborative, multi-year structure of funding, which would be better for the organizations they work with. Raywin said, What we're wanting to do is see change at scale, which means we need businesses to be encouraged to have a positive impact as well as charities. We can do that through our investments. So I think that the gap that you're trying to fill, i.e. seed funding for startups, is also perceived by funders. But it's a difficult gap to bridge under the restrictions of community grant funding. Raywin said that Well Energy Trust is seeing more charities wanting to evolve into social enterprises because these can ultimately be more sustainable. Jeanette Searle is a serial social entrepreneur and sees the value in this as well. She has tended to use both charitable trusts and entities that can attract Ministry of Education funding with the Youth at Risk Initiative work that she has been piloting and refining with considerable success. She said, The charitable trust gave us that openness to be able to use philanthropic funds and grants, and with that comes the flexibility, one that you don't have to pay it back to trial whatever it is you're doing, and quite a bit of flexibility around what you do. And if things change and you have a really good reason why things have changed, or if it's not worked so that you've shifted it to something else, that's all the freedom that you have to be able to do that. Jeanette's expertise in working within the current system, her extensive experience in the philanthropic space, and her visionary cross-sector networking make her situation different from most startup social entrepreneurs. But it is her sentiment in effectively repurposing what charity can be for and how it can operate in the contemporary environment that is of significance to the commentary on legal structure in this report and the enduring but no longer productive exclusive separation of doing good and doing for-profit business that is enshrined in law. 
While some of the social enterprises who answered the online survey said that donee status would be useful for organizations like TradeAid and CBC, grant funding and donations were not sought or even wanted. Jeff Walker from TradeAid said, To give you some context, last year we had $20 million group turnover and $1,000 of donations in there. Cliff Colhoun from CBC said that while they are eligible for charitable funding, this is an option that they actually try to avoid. And I think every community organization wants to avoid funding. None of them want to be dependent on funding. They know they need it to start off, but they all have a desire to be funding free. You can get locked into the view of the person that's funding you and what they're looking for, rather than following a process that you're looking for. A lot of the time it's one-year funding. It's a one-off funding, and the problem is that a lot of things you're doing, you're just getting started on after a year, and you've most probably got three to five years of work to get it to the point where it's having impact. Kilmarnock are also eligible for funding, but Michelle Sharp is intent on evolving what funding is and what funding can do within a trading enterprise like theirs, where the charitable status is there for Mission Lock. She said... Shifting that mindset of government thinking that they're grant givers to invest in outcomes that are real would be a really good thing, because any dollar that's ever given to us will go so much further than a dollar that's going into an organisation who relies entirely on grants or donations. Because our dollar turns into something, but how can model gain further credibility in terms of saying that this is actually the solution to some of our most complicated social and environmental issues that traditional ways have not solved? That is how I would love to see their mindset evolve and for them to think differently. Tax, mission, and legal structure. The issue of tax came up a lot in the interviews with social enterprises. Paying it, not having to pay it, how this is linked to charitable status, and the trade-offs that this entailed, as well as the perception of this, and how this fundamentally impacted cash flow for businesses that have challenges associated with their mandates, as well as all the normal business issues. Mission Lock was a factor in defaulting to charitable status for a number of the organizations, but the other reason all the organizations gave was because of the tax status of charitable entities. While charitable status makes operating as a social enterprise difficult because a charity that seeks to make money and operate like a business does not make sense to many external observers, the tax relief helps social enterprises carry out their mission by easing the financial burdens. The Trade Aid Group are really a not-for-loss business, and their charitable status across all their entities is part historical legacy, part mission lock that they were advised to take on when they were audited by the IRD in 1999. Jeff Walker said, Being a charity prevents a takeover and somebody running the business differently, you know, and I guess it forces protectionism into our constitution, which is probably a really good thing. The tax exemption that comes with charitable status, though, is significant, although this depends on how you look at it. Jeff explained, Obviously, income tax exemption is an advantage. Arguably, though, we spend money on education, which most trading businesses wouldn't. So while we don't pay tax, we actually do a charitable purpose instead. However, with 30-odd entities under the trade aid umbrella, the compliance and reporting for charity services is enormous. They were on the highest level of accounting reporting because of the debt instruments they had, but have since dropped to Tier 2. Jeff noted, But I've sometimes wondered whether our audit fees are roughly equal to our tax bill, so we could just pay tax and not have the reporting cost of audits. But the reputational piece that being a charity in the contemporary business environment, as opposed to an LLC for trade aid, still outweighs this because of the assumption that charity is the entity that legitimately creates impact. 
For Kilmarnock, tax concessions were part of their equation for an ideal social enterprise legal structure. While it was not a deal-breaker, and neither Michelle Sharp or Tim Jones had an issue with paying tax per se, it is actually part of a bigger reality. The tax question is interesting. I don't think that would be a reason not to move to a new legal structure. But I don't think it would be fair if we had to start paying full tax, the same as if we were the contract manufacturer down the road that's exploiting the world and its people. Tax and paying or not paying it was more about the fact that for their organizations, they are already doing what tax pay for in New Zealand via social spending. For them, paying tax effectively curtails what they can do in terms of impact, which is not in the interests of the community or the government. Samantha Jones from Little Yellowbird said that her company is not paying huge amounts of tax at the moment because they are reinvesting in growth. However, cash flow can be an issue. The setup of the way GST is payable when a shipment comes in from overseas, for example, is a pressure that all importing businesses face. But because Little Yellowbird are paying more up front, but are still required to fulfill their GST payment obligations as per standard business, they are in a double bind. Samantha said, We had a big order come in the other day from India, and then we had to pay $15,000 in GST up front which we get back eventually, but if you're looking at structures or ways to help social enterprises, not having to pay right then would be really handy. This is not a legal structure issue per se, but this whole scenario is predicated on a particular way of conducting business, as in paying the least amount up front so as to manage these sorts of cash flow issues. By operating as a social enterprise, organizations can be disadvantaged by the tax system. Income tax relief for CBEC is important because the levels of surplus they generate via the way they are conducting business, whereby they are not operating for maximum profit, but still not for loss, makes a difference. Kuf Kohun said, Recycling was never profitable in its first 15 years because we're doing it for the good of the planet. And so if we were paying tax, we wouldn't have paid tax anyway because we were losing every year anyway. So maybe it wouldn't have been such a big issue, because in real terms, as an enterprise, we weren't making a profit out of it anyway. So was tax a big issue? I don't know. It's a good question, actually. But if you grow more, then it's definitely a value, like as an organisation. CBC has a reasonable turnover, about $5 million a year. No, we don't make huge surplus. We might make 50000 to to $100,000 surplus, which is minuscule. So that, taking a percentage out in tax really does affect our ability to do things in our town. So yes, it does have an impact if you actually create a surplus as a profitable organisation like we are now, because as a community enterprise, we put all our revenue back into our community, and that has an impact, definitely. The tax relief given to charity is to acknowledge that these organisations create impact. If social enterprises do not default to charitable status under the current system, they end up having to pay tax and carry the cost of doing their mission. How does that recognize and enable the broader benefits these organizations are generating for New Zealand? 2.3. Innovation versus Legal Structure The limiting of innovation and a process of stunting of growth is occurring in the social enterprise sector in New Zealand, and therefore for New Zealand as a whole, as a consequence of the disadvantages identified in this report. Social enterprises operate in a noticeably more challenging regulatory and funding environment, making it significantly more difficult for them to find the space and resource to be able to innovate. Social enterprise in New Zealand are born into this challenging environment, and because of this environment, only the most exceptional entrepreneurs are able to succeed. 
This is not caused exclusively by the legal structure options available, but if strategic changes are made in legal structure, New Zealand could potentially unleash levels of innovation in this country that could make New Zealand a leader in social, environmental, and economic development. The social entrepreneurs we've spoken with in this research are finding innovative ways to trade in sustainable and efficient ways and pursue their purpose, despite a funding environment that struggles to understand what the business activity is that social enterprises are doing and how clever it really is. Added to this is a legal environment that delineates and maintains a way of doing economy that is fundamentally different to the ways social enterprises operate and the taken-for-granted perceptions of what business and charity have long been on the part of the public and, to an extent, the government. This is an issue because the social entrepreneurs who are innovating in the sector in New Zealand at the moment are making New Zealand a better place and are effectively creating a more expansive version of economy for New Zealand, which is what the Living Standards Framework is all about. Many social enterprises have arisen because of failure on the part of existing solutions to look after communities and others as responses to social or environmental need. All have innovatively looked to the tools of market and the process of trading with business acumen and nuanced market strategy, but with a different set of values to motivate them. Michelle Sharp from Kilmarnock expresses what all the social enterprises we spoke with feel. The tools of business are critical to solving some of our most challenging social and environmental issues. Jeanette Searle of Achieving at Waitakere and Take My Hands, amongst other social enterprise and charity initiatives, is passionate about cross-sector collaboration to create enterprise that is greater than the sum of its parts and the crucial role that the tools of business need to play. I personally have a belief that long-term sustainable social change will only happen if you get all the sectors involved and that they're all able to work to their strengths. The role of business is not just about access to funds. It's also about the really good models and practices that you do in business that work really well, because business has been amazing at doing what it was supposed to do, to generate profits for its stakeholders. So if you shift where you place value, you can actually say this is about generating impact, and there is value in the impact, and it can happen alongside financial gain too. Most of the interviewees identified their charitable status as a barrier to innovation. CBC identified that the board of directors that their legal structure requires affects their capacity to innovate and to be entrepreneurial with new opportunities. Cliff is a serial entrepreneur in the community space, but the governance model of their legal structure, whereby directors are publicly elected, requires considerable work because the differential between his capacity and vision and would-be director's understanding of the space they work in can be problematic. We have a couple of people out out of nine or ten board members that change per year, so we have to educate the new ones each time. And if you get a few vocal people who come in who have similar backgrounds that doesn't involve taking risk, it can be difficult, because what do you think their view of risk is going to be? Very averse, and everything we do is marginal and risky. One of the findings that has emerged most strongly from the research is the level of extraordinary entrepreneurship that is taking place in the social enterprise sector in New Zealand, and that this is happening for the most part despite the legal structure options as they stand. Entrepreneurs take risks, but they do this based on nuanced insights and perspectives on the market that they consider gives them the capacity to create and maintain a successful business. They take the componentry of the market as they understand it and reassemble these to create new ways of doing things. 
This componentry is broader than what a standard entrepreneur uses because social entrepreneurs understand how human economy works. Imagine an environment where social enterprise was enabled, where Imagine an environment where social enterprises were enabled, where organizations were encouraged to be born into a structure that helps manifest all four capitals as expressed in the Living Standards Framework. Imagine how this would deliver a noticeably greater well-being for New Zealand and its people, and how this could potentially encourage all businesses to output financial as well as human, social, and environmental capitals. The authors of this report suggest that it is imperative for legal structures in New Zealand to evolve to be more enabling for social enterprises to achieve this. The Treasury and the New Zealand government are making great strides with the Living Standards Framework. The next section sets out a series of solutions that could be applied to legal structures in this country to help social enterprises continue to lead the way in doing business and create the sort of economy that the Living Standard Framework envisages. Part 3. Solutions This research has focused on communicating the evidence of challenges social enterprises face that are associated with existing legal structures. To end this report, this section will focus on the future and what solutions to those challenges might look like. When considering possible solutions, it is important to keep in mind the growth of the social enterprise sector and, accordingly, the value and impact created for New Zealand to date. Currently, even with the challenges as presented in this report, there are approximately 3,711 social enterprises trading for impact in New Zealand and contributing $1 billion to the New Zealand economy. Given the growth of the social enterprise sector, even with the current challenges, it is clear that there are immense and yet unrealized benefits to be gained for New Zealand in empowering social enterprises and the wider sector to increase the amount of everyday social and environmental good resulting from trading for impact. Social enterprises are making do with the existing array of charity and for-profit legal structures. However, as this report has shown, this is most often a workaround at best, and more often than not, a barrier to both establishing and growing social enterprises. This is because in the current system, doing good is systematically kept separate from doing business. Adapting the current company's framework to serve social enterprise companies would ensure that when that light bulb moment of a new idea for creating impact happens, social entrepreneurs don't need to innovatively adapt existing solutions and then make do with the ill-fitting legal form that results. Social enterprises needs a new vehicle that fits better than the current legal structures we have. Resolving the challenges of the current legal structure would go a long way towards creating the right ecosystem for social enterprises to thrive. A solution is required to the challenges faced by social enterprises in New Zealand to enable a future where business will more effectively support society's goals as the social enterprise sector grows and serves public needs in line with the Living Standards Framework. Investors can intentionally invest in positive impact. Consumers can trust impact statements and not be worried about social washing, and social enterprises can be confident in talking about their impact. What is the solution? Foundational work to create an ecosystem for social enterprises to flourish in New Zealand is underway with the Social Enterprise Sector Development Program and will continue to be a process of cooperation between government and non-governmental stakeholders. 
However, the process of unlocking the potential impact from social enterprises will be accelerated and cohesive if government led the way by creating the framework in law and policy that social enterprises need to succeed. The chance here is to be a world leader by examining what is done around the world and adopting a model for social enterprises that is bespoke, innovative, and relevant for our unique New Zealand context. To refine in detail the ultimate solutions to the issues presented in this report, further research into the details of suitable solutions in partnership with government is required. However, this section will present a pathway forward focusing on what solutions could look like. It should be clear that there will not be only one solution. Rather, it will be a combination of factors which will provide an enhanced framework for the successful development and operation of the social enterprise sector in New Zealand. There is growing support for the impact movement already happening within corporates echoed in consumers exercising their choices to support causes through what they buy and in government as a clear driving force behind the Living Standards Framework and the inclusion of social enterprise in the recent draft government procurement rules. The social enterprise sector already exists and is growing in New Zealand, and some social enterprises are experiencing great success. However, to multiply that success, there is a need to remove, or at least reduce, the challenges experienced by social enterprises. Government has the chance now to ensure that New Zealand is recognized globally as a country that enables all business to deliver impact. To do this, we propose the following steps. Stage 1. Education and support. The first stage involves continuing, but also developing and expanding programs of education and support for social enterprises, funders, and the general public to navigate the challenges of the existing structures. A support program is underway in the form of the Sector Development Program, funded by government until 2021. This program needs to continue to be supported by government and expanded to include other relevant stakeholders, for example, funders, investors, local government, government departments. Stakeholders need to be educated and supported to deal with the limitations and challenges of working with social enterprises to get to a point where the wider business sector can cohesively and actively help support social enterprises grow and deliver impact. Stage 2. Evolve the law for a fit-for-purpose social enterprise model. We recommend developing the existing flexible company structure to establish a company model fit for social enterprises. This would involve amendments to the Companies Act 1993 to incorporate opt-in provisions for a social enterprise model that we will refer to as an impact company. An impact company, as a variation of the existing company structure, recognizes the mission primacy of social enterprise and will provide the conditions necessary for easier flow of capital, customers, and capability to impact-orientated businesses in the current system. A legitimized identity will help relieve the burdens that social enterprises must overcome to trade competitively with for-profit businesses. The eligibility criteria for the new type of company will need to be considered, and how prescriptive the criteria are may depend on whether this new vehicle unlocks further benefits for social enterprises, i.e. access to funding or even a different tax treatment. Stage 3. Incentivize impact companies. 
Recognizing the positive economic, social, cultural, and environmental impacts generated by social enterprise companies for New Zealand, future research should be undertaken on how best to incentivize these organizations to maximize those outcomes to achieve policy goals and serve public needs in New Zealand. Stage 1. Education and Support Education and support provide the foundation for all further action for the continued expansion of the social enterprise sector to, first, help social entrepreneurs navigate legal structures and adapt the available options to establish trading entities focused on achieving impact. Second, promote the idea of social enterprise and impact-focused businesses in the minds of the public, business, and investment communities. And thirdly, broaden the minds of investors to make investment in social enterprise mainstream. Support to adapt current structures. This stage is already underway with the Sustainable Development Program, a partnership between Akina and the government. Education programs can help by creating resources and templates for social enterprises to understand and adapt the available legal structure options. This would also expand the number of individuals and organizations that social entrepreneurs can work with and who understand trading with other forms of value in the mix. Education and support can address the challenges social enterprises face in tailoring ill-fitting legal structures and make the existing complex and misunderstood processes easier, cheaper, and faster to navigate. As a next step, creative lawyering that has already been done to get around the inadequacies of the current legal structures can be made more accessible by the development of the resources on the company's office website, including template constitutional documents or summaries of social enterprise status, publishing information sheets, and funding and upskilling advisors working in the sector. Educating the wider sector to unlock funding. The evidence from the research in this report shows that impact from trading is currently not valued or understood, making it hard for social enterprises to win high-value contracts or secure funding from top-tier lenders, and there are ongoing issues and difficulty around conveying the value behind social enterprise business models. Social enterprises without charitable status seek philanthropic grants, even those meeting all other criteria of the funding, and often where funders want to support the social enterprise, are generally refused or forced to use complex structures that are difficult, expensive, and time-consuming to receive grants. Education and support programs for philanthropic funders can help them understand any real limitations of providing their grant funding to social enterprises, as opposed to the persuasive perceived restrictions born out of historical practice of restricting grant funding to registered charities. As social enterprises emerge more and more as a model of business for impact, offering a vehicle for achieving the outcomes that philanthropic funders are mandated to support, it is important that such funders understand any barriers to providing funding to social enterprises and, in light of those barriers, what they can do to support social enterprises to achieve impact outcomes. Some forms of accreditation for business doing good already exist. For example, businesses in New Zealand meeting certain criteria can apply for B Corp status as part of the international B Corp brand. However, at the time of this report, fewer than 15 organizations in New Zealand have gained such certification. Instead, social enterprises are resorting to expensive and time-intensive creative lawyering to attempt to convey their point of difference from for-profits and protect their mission. 
none of which are actually working very well for any of the social enterprises we spoke with. To overcome the challenges social enterprises face, more is needed than a marketing status. New Zealand needs a recognizable, fit-for-purpose vehicle for social enterprises legitimized by government backing that eases access to funding and offers an alternative to the complexity and cost of adapting the existing for-profit structures. We believe that the next step of establishing a clear, impact-orientated company model developed from the existing flexible company structure that reflects the importance of mission for social enterprise and is legitimized by central government will catalyze the evolution of the social enterprise sector. Stage 2. Evolve the law for a fit-for-purpose impact company model. The most resounding disadvantages of the existing legal structures are the lack of ability to signal and protect the primacy of impact for social enterprises and the difficulties for social enterprises to access funding. At the moment, there are only circuitous and inadequate mechanisms to signal the impact focus of social enterprises. These mechanisms are costly to implement, add complexity, and fail to broadcast to the market the fundamental nature of maintaining the integrity and importance of impact for social enterprises. As well as the education and support programs discussed before, an important step in resolving the challenges social enterprises face is to introduce some form of government-mandated social enterprise legal structure that is recognizable and trustworthy. An identifiable social enterprise model could be utilized to remove barriers for social enterprises accessing funding, as funding that could be available to social enterprise is often restricted explicitly by funders' rules or practices to social enterprises with charitable status. A widely accepted government-mandated vehicle for social enterprise could unlock philanthropic funding by 1. Charity Services and Inland Revenue adopting a policy on the treatment of donations to such entities, reducing the risk of losing charitable status, and two, establishing a recognizable model that funders can reference in their constitutions and trust deeds so that they can confidently provide grants directly to social enterprises. We propose a fit-for-purpose model for social enterprise, which is a variation to the existing company structure, and provide some further high-level detail about what this could involve below. We refer to this model as the impact company. What could an impact company be? An impact company is a new, fit-for-purpose vehicle for impact-focused businesses, including social enterprises, which provides a way for the unique aspects of social enterprise to be recognized, but also holds them accountable. This model could be established from relatively minor amendments to the Companies Act 1993. Companies are commonly known and understood in the business community. Most importantly, limited liability companies are built for trading, and the flexibility this leads to is a strong aspect of the structure that should be maintained for impact companies. Similar modified company structures for social enterprise already exist overseas in countries including the UK, Canada, the United States, and Italy. The key opportunity for New Zealand is to learn from those first-generation models overseas, particularly their weaknesses, and jump straight into a second-generation model here. We suggest that the current framework for companies could be amended to provide that on applying to register a company, founders may opt in to be an impact company. Existing limited liability companies that meet the criteria could also opt in at any point. 
The key difference being that an impact company is a for-profit structure that prioritizes impact and has the following two key elements, each discussed in further detail, impact mandate and impact reporting. The impact mandate. Companies may adopt constitutions to set out the specific rules that apply to that entity. Each impact company would be required to adopt a constitution, including a statement that sets out the impact the entity is seeking to achieve and the prioritization of impact alongside distribution of profits. The impact company's commitment to impact through these sections of its constitution would provide the company's directors with guidance on the decisions they make. Not only that, they would be central to the organizational culture and behavior of the company as the result of impact and the development of the business, the primary means to achieve that impact, are balanced. Mission and impact. Which organizations will qualify? One of the key considerations in establishing the framework for an impact company would be to articulate what mission and impact are, the gateways to be eligible for the impact company model. Every organization has impact of different kinds, but a set of standards or types of impact that could qualify for the new impact company would need to be defined to provide legitimacy to the model and criteria that applications could be assessed against. This would be similar to how charities must meet the definition of furthering charitable purposes. A defined type of impact provides certainty and clarity for which entities will be eligible to adopt the new model. However, a definition which is too prescriptive would result in an inflexible regime that becomes quickly outdated and ends up quashing the innovation that this work is trying to unleash. Analysis of the most appropriate definition of impact for an impact company in New Zealand would be a core piece of future work on this issue. This is an opportunity to learn from existing approaches where, for example, impact has been defined by, first, meeting a community interest test, whereby the activity is regarded by a reasonable person as being in the community or wider public interest. This is the approach taken for the community interest company structure in the United Kingdom. Second, stating a general public benefit and particular public benefits, for example, in alignment with the recommendations of the Clark Bill from the Social Impact Investment Task Force. This is the approach taken for the benefit corporation structure in the United States. Or, third, furthering prescriptive categories of public benefit, such as charitable purposes, as defined in the Charities Act 2005. Impact Reporting Private for-profit companies generally have few reporting obligations. However, to ensure public confidence and trust in the social enterprise model, it would also be important to ensure there are appropriate accountability measures, such as annual performance reporting. Many social enterprises are already voluntarily reporting impact because they realize that transparent reporting is key to showing the impact that social enterprises have and that this is inextricably linked to their identity as mission-led entities. An impact company would be required to prepare and publish an annual report that outlines how it's performed in achieving its impact mission, not dissimilar to the performance reports required for most charities. The research for this report revealed that releasing financial information is not considered by social enterprises to be the most relevant measure for this. Rather, information focused on impact and performance along the lines of the existing performance reporting introduced for registered charities is key. Next steps. Further work is required into the details of this impact company 
including appropriate mission criteria and understanding the amendments required to the existing company's regime. For example, the application of directors' duties to directors of impact companies may be modified to include prioritizing or furthering impact and stakeholder interests when considering what is in the best interests of the impact company. The task of formulating the final model for social enterprises should also enable support from the wider philanthropic sector. Once there is a framework for the impact company model, a government-mandated organization able to validate impact and monitor reporting should be appointed. For example, the regulatory body for companies, another agency, or a third party mandated by government. Business of the future. The definition of impact must be formulated in consultation with stakeholders and in the context of understanding how the social enterprise model could be utilized by the wider business sector, including investors and philanthropic funders, to address the issues social enterprise is facing. This is an important opportunity to address what impact means in our distinct New Zealand context, recognizing Te Tiriti o Waitangi and the world-leading entrepreneurship found here. This is a chance to adopt a definition of impact that is innovative and flexible enough to serve the businesses of the future. More and more businesses are being created which prioritize impact alongside profit, delivering strong outcomes for New Zealand's economy at the same time. Creating a more enabling environment for organizations of this nature will not only be a world first, but make it significantly easier for environmental and social innovation and impact to occur in New Zealand. The long-term potential of this structure should not be underestimated. Stage 3. Incentivize Impact Companies as the social enterprise sector grows and develops in the open rather than in the shadows behind complex legal structures, it should become more explicit that already social enterprise is a delivering impact that is a public good, including achieving goals set out in the Living Standards Framework. The legitimacy gained through a new model for social enterprise will provide space and simplicity for incentivizing more social enterprise businesses, thereby multiplying the public good New Zealand receives. There are a number of ways that this can be achieved, and robust research on international examples should be completed as part of determining the most effective approach to this stage for New Zealand. For example, incentives could include, first, unlocking philanthropic funding to otherwise qualifying non-charitable social enterprises, second, providing tax incentives to donors learning from the social investment tax relief regime in the UK, Third, providing KiwiSaver investment incentives, such as the 90-10 scheme in France. And fourth, allowing a more beneficial tax treatment for income associated with achieving public good. Providing benefits to the donors and investors of social enterprise recognizes the public good resulting from the flow of capital into social enterprises. Where the barriers are removed for social enterprises to trade for impact, more investment into social enterprise will flow into more public good generated for New Zealand. What isn't the solution? As well as setting out what the new model for social enterprise would provide for, it is important to highlight those elements which the research suggests are not needed. By focusing on only the essential requirements, the model retains more, more of the flexibility of the company structure and therefore will have broader capability, applicability, and success. Caps on dividends. 
Charitable entities, by definition, cannot operate for the private gain of individuals. Using a company in its current form, caps on dividends to provide private shareholders with dividends can be included in a constitution or by shareholders' agreement, a self-regulation that is also able to be modified by agreement of the shareholders. While some social enterprises and all community enterprises prohibit or limit distributions to shareholders, employees are still paid salaries and can receive bonuses, others are reliant upon future dividends to return their investment to the enterprise to ensure they can attract top talent or to receive capital investment. The real safeguard for impact comes from the prioritization of impact alongside profit, which would be built and is the foremost consideration in making each decision, including the distribution of any dividends. Therefore, the current approach for companies determining themselves what cap or percentages on dividends would be retained without a high risk of misuse. Asset Lock In the United Kingdom, the community interest company model forces assets to be locked in, which means that if the company winds up, the assets need to go to another entity similar to it. This is very similar to the approach taken for companies with charitable status in New Zealand to to safeguard the charitable purposes and donations the entity received. Because forcing assets to be locked in, especially where the social enterprise restricts dividends or does not retain profits, may limit the growth of the sector, compulsory asset lock would not be a requirement imposed on all social enterprises. Tax exemption. Tax treatment was often raised by those interviewed in the social enterprises, but typically was not seen as a barrier. However, understanding the different tax treatment of charities and for-profit business does raise the question of what the appropriate tax treatment for social enterprises would be. While there is strong logic for profit-making entities, including social enterprises, to pay tax, there is also a strong logic for the externalities of these organizations to be better reflected within the tax system, for example, in providing incentives for impact as discussed in Stage 3 above. Other Existing Structures The organizations interviewed as part of this research were representative of a broad range of available legal structures in New Zealand, including limited liability companies, limited partnerships, incorporated societies, and trusts. While these all have their own advantages and disadvantages, it seems the limited liability company is the most suitable entity due to its simplicity and flexibility to evolve to better represent businesses of the future. If New Zealand really does want to be on the right side of history, Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern in Davos, February 2019, evolving the legal structures in this country to help foster and support social enterprise is imperative. The social enterprise sector has the potential to lead the way for all businesses in this country to increase financial capital and to provide for the well-being of the people and the environment of New Zealand for generations to come. The current array of legal structures available to social enterprises in New Zealand are not helping the sector thrive. At best, these structures are neutral for social enterprises, but for most social enterprises, the legal structures available create an array of barriers or reflect broader structural forces that deny the different ways that social enterprises operate in the business space, despite that way being for the greater good of New Zealand. In line with the Living Standards Framework being developed by Treasury and the government as a whole, Michelle Sharp of Kilmarnock said, The tools of business are critical to solving some of our most challenging social and environmental issues. This is about combining financial, 
social, cultural, and environmental capital in a way that is sustainable and viable, in a way that enables the entrepreneurial spirit that is so strong in New Zealand to combine with the efficiencies of business to tackle some of our most pressing challenges. Social enterprise has created a model that demonstrates that this is possible, despite the challenges the current structures pose. The potential for New Zealand if a more enabling environment is created for organizations to pursue impact through business cannot be underestimated. Well, I hope you enjoyed that audiobook. Again, a big thank you to my wife, Ellie, who was willing to step in and read so many quotes. If you enjoy what I'm trying to do with Seeds Podcast, then I'd really appreciate you spreading the word about it and amongst your channels and people that you know who I'll never get to meet. And do check out some of the almost 100 episodes of previous Seeds Podcast episodes. There's also a Facebook page, a Twitter account, an Instagram account. There's many ways to connect. And of course, the webpage is www.theseeds.nz. And there's lots of social enterprise material and information there. I do hope this audiobook has been helpful. I truly believe that this report is potentially groundbreaking, and so it'd be great to get your help to spread the word about what it is and what it's trying to do. Until next time! Mm-hmm.